opinions expressed on ACB Radio are those of the respective program contributors and cannot be assumed to serve as endorsements of products or views of the American Council of the Blind, its elected officials, or its staff. Washington Council of the Blind appreciates the support of our investment partner, the iStare Group at Morgan Stanley, who, for the second year in a row, is our main convention sponsor. Find out more at 800 800- 426-7837. And many thanks to our platinum sponsors, Deb Cook-Lewis, Sherry Richardson, Kayla King, Northwest Access Fund, and United Blind of Seattle. Our gold sponsors, Anonymous, Mary Lee Richards, Andy Arvidson, Viola Benson, Colette Arvidson, Terry Atwater, Glenn McCulley, Ursula McCulley, and Stuart Russell. Our silver sponsors, Anonymous, Rita Dillick, Michael Edwards, Maria Buzinska, and Michael Alvarez. Our bronze sponsors, three anonymous donors, Danette Dixon, Nancy Lind, Jim Turry, Cindy Hollis, Doreen Cornwell, the Lighthouse for the Blind Incorporated, Bruce Radke, Yuki Tamura, Guidelights and Gadgets, and Hope Vision Foundation. Thank you to all our convention sponsors. My partner Jim came up with the idea of naming the group I Steer, which is actually a Celtic word for journey. We're there to make sure that we chart a path through financial planning, uh, that we help avoid pitfalls. Our goal is to assist those clients so they can kind of take in the scenery. What we felt is, is that the planning element of what we do was the most important thing to help families. We developed this concept of being a family CFO, and that has stuck with us to this day and is really one of the central tenets of what we do with clients. What I tell clients, uh, husbands and wives that come to us, whether they're business owners or they've amassed some wealth through uh, stock concentration is you have a balance sheet. You have liabilities that you're trying to offset. You have future goals that you're trying to achieve. You have taxes that you're trying to manage. You have philanthropic goals that you know, you're know you starting to develop. So we, as your personal CFO, have to create the business strategy alongside of you. And then similar to the chairman of the board, we come back and we report to you every quarter on the health of that strategy and any recommendations or changes that we would like to make. The reason you're hiring us as your CFO is to is to free up your time to do the things that are really important to you during your life, whether it's work on your philanthropy or travel or spend time with your grandchildren. We, we really show we care in the way we've structured you know, how we do things for clients. We're really proud of the team that we've built to support the client base. We have designations around financial planning and investment management. We wanted to make sure that we had different perspectives on the team uh, to assist those clients. People are depending on us to make sure that um, what they want is in place. The market goes up and the market goes down. We're still going to be working. We're still here for you. And I think that's really important. 
whatever our clients need, we can provide solutions using the leverage and the scale of one of the largest wealth management firms in the world. So it's been a great symbiotic relationship between the firm, its platform, its commitment to the wealth management business, and the type of practice that we want to run uh, for our clients and the type of advice that we want to give them. This is Kathy. And I'm Julie. We're members of PCAB. We meet the third Saturday of every month. We have lots of great speakers. Come join us. You can reach us at 253-564-6464. You know, Julie, the last year and a half has been very challenging. It sure has. But if you look deeper, you can see the momentum and the positive aspects that have benefited us all. That's true. And a great example is telehealth. It sure is nice not having to schedule a ride for a 15-minute doctor's appointment. Mm-hmm. What about job opportunities? Many jobs may be created because employers are now hiring remotely in and out of state. So, WCB, this is our time. Let's continue this momentum and keep moving forward for the betterment of us all. We can connect through Zoom with our community, state, and the world. This is our time. WCB near or far together we are at guys your access technology experts with affordable and useful technology gadgets and tools for use at work school or play from headsets to braille displays keyboards and cell phones voice recorders and cases to protect your gadgets our most popular product this year is the VersaSlate Paperless Slate and Stylus, giving you four lines of 20 cells that you can reuse as many times as you need to to quickly jot down that confirmation number or phone number while you're out and about and on the go and not have to worry about carrying paper with you as it's completely reusable. We've also got the Blindshell 2 phone with a much louder speaker, the ability to add applications or just use it as a phone if you want get more information at atguys.com or give us a call 269-216-4798 customized training and accessibility consulting also available hello i'm artist basin with basin communications i'm a speaker business coach and writer i do coaching on a number of topics goal setting And goal setting can be for entrepreneurs, it can be for someone considering retiring, or it can be someone that's just trying to amp up their exercise plan. I also work with entrepreneurs, people starting a business that don't know exactly what to do first. I also do sell some products. I have a multi-pocketed tote bag, which has large pockets and small and also has a place for a water bottle as well as your cell phone. It has a placard on the side which says, making the impossible possible. The placard is blue and the rest of the tote bag is black. I also sell 1GB thumb drives as well as braille and print greeting cards. Thank you. If you want to reach me, contact me by calling 818-238-9321. And my email address is abazin at bazincommunications.com. 
and Bazin is spelled B-A-Z-Y-N. Thanks again. I am a member of United Blind of Seattle. I am a member of United Blind of Seattle. I am a member of United Blind of Seattle. United Blind of Seattle is one of the oldest and largest affiliate members of the Washington Council of the Blind. We offer a warm and welcoming environment for everyone in the blind and low vision community. Our mission is to provide advocacy, support, educational opportunities, social activities, and more. We are a diverse and vibrant membership dedicated to the goal of elevating and empowering the lives of everyone in the blind community. We We are are members members of of United Blind It's more than just a goal. It's our passion, and we invite you to join us. To find out more about the United Blind of Seattle, or to find a local chapter near you, go to wcbinfo.org. Hello, I'm Jennifer Wenzel, Talent Acquisition Coordinator at Beyond Vision. Hi, I'm Stephen Gould, the marketing assistant at Beyond Vision. So Jennifer, what is Beyond Vision all about? We're about real jobs for real wages and accessibility to all jobs, regardless of visual acuity. We offer jobs to blind and visually impaired individuals in manufacturing, a machine shop, a customer call center, base supply center stores across the country, and at all levels of our company. What other opportunities do we give people, Stephen? Beyond Vision has so many opportunities, including possibility for promotions, contributing to the community, and gaining independence. Here at Beyond Vision, we have a runway metaphor. Our employees can land for a great career or take off in new directions after gaining valuable work experience. Apply today. Send a resume and salary requirements to jobs at beyondvision.com or call Jennifer at 414-335-3762. Hope to hear from you soon. Hi, do you need a low-cost, efficient, and accessible computer? I know this sounds like an infomercial, but it's true. At Computers for the Blind, we take gently used computers from major corporations. We use volunteers to refurbish them and add a one-year license of JAWS or ZoomText, along with some other helpful software, and then we sell them to folks like you, starting at about $150 for a desktop and $200 for a laptop. You can even upgrade your computer for an additional cost. Please call us at 214-340-6328 or visit us at computersfortheblind.org to order your computer now. That's 214-340-6328 or computersfortheblind.org. Thanks so much and have a great day in conference. The United Blind of Tri-Cities is one of the largest and most active chapters in the Washington Council of the Blind. We hold our monthly business meetings over breakfast on the second Saturdays of each month, but we know that numerous social activities keep a group strong. We thus encourage our members to get out of their homes, and we party every week at United Blind of Tri-Cities. We have a lunch bunch get-together, a group that plays cards, a book discussion group, and a tech group. Each fall, we have an annual picnic in the park, and December... We have both a Christmas party and a pizza feed. This fall, we also started our hand-building pottery class. Each day we wake up to hear the Tri-Cities Herald read to us by our local radio reading service. During the performance season, we also treat our members to describe plays. We have an email list, a presence on the web, and on Facebook, contact Frank Cuda, 509-967-2658, or Frank at 
CUTA.net. This message is from the Washington State Department of Services for the Blind. Washington State Department of Services for the Blind provides services for people of all ages who are blind or have low vision in the state of Washington. DSV provides training, counseling, and support to help Washington residents of all ages who are blind or visually impaired pursue employment, education, and independent living. Our goal is inclusion, independence, and economic vitality for people with visual disabilities. For more information, Call the Washington State Department of Services for the Blind toll-free at 800-552-7103 or go to www.dsv.wa.gov. Hello, everyone. This is Barry Scheuer and Kayan Rausch with Guidelights and Gadgets. We specialize in three product lines, leather goods of every type and for every occasion, from neck pouches to shoulder bags to braille display and protective cases, wallets, and a whole lot more. Our primary source is from a motorcycle accessories company that makes some of the toughest and best quality craftsmanship we have ever found. A line of talking medical products, including our new talking oximeter, and curated gadgets and electronics in headphones, speakers, and our sound box amplifiers for portable book players and phones. Dog and handler products for safety, convenience, travel, and fun. The best way to reach us is by calling Barry at 617-969-7500 or Ann at 781-286-1696 or you can look us up at www.guidelightsandgadgets.us. Hope you have a great convention. The United Blind of Whatcom County comprise members from Bellingham and the surrounding towns. We meet every second Friday of the month at 1 p.m. on Zoom. Responding to member interest, we have held informal classes on iPhone use, computer skills, and Braille note-taking. We have provided scholarships for blind students and low-tech equipment for people who are aging and losing their vision. Some community outreach activities include singing carols for Centers on Aging, making a float for the Farmer's Day Parade, and sponsoring a White Cane Day. If this sounds like fun to you, join us. Contact Yvonne Miller, 360-758-3194. Email mi11ertime at gmail.com. Welcome to Hims, your friend and partner for refreshable Braille across Washington State. Our friendly staff are here to help you meet your goals. With products like the QBraille XL, a hybrid 40 cell braille display, or the world's fastest note taker that everyone is talking about, the all new Braille Sense 6 running Android 10. We are proud to partner with Irie AT in the state of Washington to help you with your refreshable braille needs. From products to services and world-class training, IREAT is going to be there for you. You can learn more about HIMS Refreshable Braille online at hymns-inc.com or visit our partners online at irie-at.com. Thanks for joining.
This is Kareth, the Executive Director of the Whole Foundation and Learning Center. We are a foundation for adults with sight loss and blindness located in Sandy, Oregon. We have a 23-acre park that allows us to have in-person retreats, seminars, workshops, and getaways. And we also have online offerings, uh, workshops, and uh, group chats, a book club, and all kinds of variety of things that we offer online for free. We also have a peer-to-peer -peer support program that is free and usually by phone where we can answer all kinds of questions um, that you may be having from crafting to uh, safety to um, something in the kitchen where you're looking for a specific type of gadget or maybe you just have a question about something you're experiencing with your site we would love to get to know more about you and we have a newsletter that we can send you every month to let you know what we're up to give us a call at 503-668-6195 thank you yakima valley council of the blind is proud to be a part of washington council of the blind and american council of the blind as a member-driven nonprofit, advocating for and supporting all blind and visually impaired washingtonians and educating our community our chapter has been active in the yakima valley since 2002 and we've continued our weekly bowling with the blind outreach with generous support from Yakima Lions Club. We welcome everyone passing through Yakima on a Friday morning to come bowl with our crew, led by our favorite 100-year-old bowler, Ann. Ann is up next. She's going for a spare here at Knob Hill Bowling in Yakima, Washington. Okay, Ann, is she going to get it? Come on! This is Irie AT, Braille and Low Vision. If you need video magnification, look to Irie AT. We have handheld magnifiers, portable and foldable magnifiers, scan and read magnifiers, desktop CCTVs, and more. If you need to use a computer, Irie AT can help. We have software that can magnify your computer screen and talk back to you aloud. I love my Dolphin Supernova screen magnification software. Irie AT even has simplified solutions to make using a computer or mobile device easy. If you need the most accurate scan and read devices, look no further than IRIAT. We have numerous devices and computer connected systems. The norm he knew. I read with interest gray and gold scathing IRIAT has the widest range of braille embossers, including an affordable personal embosser. We have ink and braille embossers, and we specialize in teaching tactile graphics to schools. Reach out by email at sales at irie-at.com or give us a call at 888-308-0059. This is Irie AT, Braille and Low Vision. If you need video magnification... If you need help affordably financing assistive technologies, consider contacting Northwest Access Fund. Northwest Access Fund is a nonprofit loan fund dedicated to serving Washingtonians with disabilities. We offer 5% interest rate loans up to 25000 with up to five-year terms to purchase assistive technologies, also known as AT. We can consider applications for any item, piece of equipment, software, program, or product system that can help a person with a disability live a more independent and satisfying life. WCB members in good standing for at least six months are eligible for AT loans at 0% interest rate.
We also offer financial coaching services designed to meet the unique needs of people with disabilities. We can help with building credit, opening up an ABLE account, or a safe and affordable bank account. We can also help answer questions about Social Security benefits. To contact Northwest Access Fund, please call 206-328-5116 or go to our website at nwaccessfund.org. Northwest Association for Blind Athletes' mission is to provide life-changing opportunities through sports and physical activity to individuals who are blind and visually impaired. Our programs are at no cost to our athletes, and our motto is if you have a body, you are an athlete. Our ongoing programs are non-competitive, and we meet athletes where they are in their physical activity journey. Join us for in-person programming, including tandem biking, snowshoeing, kayaking, swimming, hiking, and more or join us for our virtual high contrast and audio described live workouts weekly. For more information, please call or text 360-448-7254 or email the programs team at programsteam at nwaba.org. Thank you. The Lighthouse for the Blind Incorporated is a private, not-for-profit social enterprise that provides employment, support, and training opportunities for people who are blind, deafblind, and blind with other disabilities. We've provided employment and support to people who are blind since 1918. Our philosophy is that each employee be provided with whatever supports are necessary to be successful in the workplace. Supports include an in-house sign language interpreting department ensuring effective communication with employees who are deafblind, Orientation and mobility instruction to teach independent travel using a white cane or guide dog, and over 100 computer workstations adapted for use by individuals who are visually impaired. If you're interested in finding a, a job with a purpose, visit lhblind.org/jobs and apply today. Washington Talking Book and Braille Library, Watabel, is a program of the Washington State Library a division of the Office of Secretary of State, and a regional library of the National Library Service for the Blind and Print Disabled. Watabel provides free, comprehensive library service to Washington residents who are blind, visually impaired, deaf-blind, physically disabled, can't hold a book or turn a page, or reading disabled. Books and magazines are available in audio or braille, sent free by mail, or downloaded from our website or mobile device for your reading convenience. Watabel provides readers' advisory, programming, instruction and training, and a youth services program including summer reading, an accessible gaming lab, early literacy, a youth large print collection, and multi-sensory story times. Books with a Northwest focus are also produced locally in audio and braille at the Library for Inclusion in the National Collection. For an application for service or more information, contact Watabel at 800-542-0866 or www.wtbbl.org. Washington Council of the Blind wishes to thank all of our live auction and door prize donors. Haley Agers, Anacortes Subacto, Basin Communications, Bigfoot Music, Julie and Nathan Brannon, Alco Canfield, Computers for the Blind, Doreen Cornwell, Frank Cuda, Lisa and Reg George, Guide Dog Users of Washington State, Chef Ed Harris, Irie AT Incorporated.
Kalispell Tribe and Northern Quest Resort and Casino. Josette Kernahan, Pierce County Association of the Blind. Sherry Richardson, Seattle Seahawks, Snohomish County Council of the Blind, South King Council of the Blind, South Kitsap Council of the Blind, Spokane Council of the Blind, United Blind of Tri-Cities, United Blind of Walla Walla, United Blind of Whatcom County, Valdemar Estates Winery, WCB Diabetics, members of WCB Families Committee, and Yakima Valley Council of the Blind. Good morning, Washington Council of the Blind, and good morning to all of you out there in ACB Media Land. I'm Denise Colley, the Washington Council of the Blind immediate past president, and your presiding officer for our first segment this morning. Our host for this morning is Sheila Young. Thank you, Sheila. And our streamer and first speaker, so I guess she's going to multitask, is our own Deb Cook-Lewis. Thanks, Deb. I get the opportunity this morning to um, get to introduce two parts of the convention that are always my favorite parts. And the first um, segment this morning is going to be the report from our national representative. Um, we get to find out what's going on with ACB. And if any of you have been listening to the ACB board meetings recently, you will know that for the past year, we have been moving fast and furious and all kinds of things have been going on on national level. It's been really fun to be a part of it. As Julie told you yesterday, there are three WCB members who are on the ACB Board of Directors, so well, we're real, well represented. And this morning, to bring us our report from the ACB, please help me welcome ACB First Vice President and our own Deb Cook-Lewis. Deb, go ahead. Well, thank you, Denise. I'm really honored to be here and really excited to be here. And I'm really nervous because yesterday you had those great guys from the Toastmasters. And I've always wanted to sign up for Toastmasters and I've never done it. And now <laughs> I'm really panicked because I know that there are people out there counting how many times I say uh and er and yeah, no. So just that's the way it is, I guess. <laughs> but it is wonderful to be here. It's also a huge challenge to be here because I don't know what I can tell you all about ACB on the national level that isn't available for you to know already. And so that's really mostly what I want to talk about. And then I want to open it up for questions because in case I'm wrong and there is something you don't know that you wish you knew, if I don't know, I'll ask Denise because she's right here. So that's good um, because I'm pretty new on the national scene as far as actually being an officer is concerned. So um, that's exciting to me. But let me just say that change has been the order of the day in so many ways in our world, uh, in our organization, and both at a state and national level. That's just been so true. WCB is having its second 
convention that is virtual and many, many other states are also on their first or second convention that is virtual. We all hope to be getting back to in-person conventions. And in fact, some states are even having hybrid conventions of sorts. Some of them have been a little more successful than others, I think, but we're learning a lot. Ohio is having its convention this weekend, and it is hybrid. Uh, It's actually a combined convention with Ohio and Indiana. I guess that only counts as one convention, though. But so many things have been changing. This summer at ACB, we're going to be having our first hybrid convention, and we're still in a great struggle to define what hybrid means. We haven't quite figured that out yet, but we have a lot of thoughts about that. We've had some consultation and assistance around that, and I think it's going to be a very exciting proposition. One of the things that we've learned from observing the state conventions is that if you are going to have components that are both virtual and in person, you aren't bounded by the dates of your convention. So while some of you may think the official in-person convention of ACB, which is eight days, is a little long, It's actually possible that we will be extending the convention out a little further than that with some virtual components. And part of that will accommodate our many special interest affiliates who have requirements in their constitutions to meet during the convention. So we may be able to make that a little bit easier by simply saying the convention is longer. I help with many of the state conventions doing the managing the Zoom and the streams. And you can imagine my absolute fright when I got the announcement for California, who I was going to be assisting in April, and learned that their convention was going to run the entire month of April. And you know how hard this has all been this weekend? Can you imagine doing that for 30 days? I don't think so. But anyway, the great uh, deal on all of that was that actually their convention was four days, and then they had 26 days to get in a lot of other activities that just didn't fit into the convention time. And it turned out to be really a breeze. So I think you're going to see something along those lines when we get to national as well. Probably not a month, but maybe longer than eight days. Speaking of uh, national convention, one of my personal goals, I don't know that it's shared by everybody in the organization. In fact, I think I can name a number of people who don't share it, but I'd love to see our national convention, the in-person part of that, being shorter. I'd like to see us ultimately meeting about five days in person. Think of how many more people could afford to come if the convention were a little shorter. Unfortunately, we won't be able to do that for at least the next three years or so because we do have hotels lined up and contracts in place. So we are going to be morphing that over time. But one of my personal goals is that the in-person conference might look a little different and might be a little shorter. And that would accommodate uh, people economically. It would also accommodate people's employment and their family lifestyle and so many other things that I think could make a difference. So one of the things I just really wanted to talk about today is all of the ways that you can interact with ACB all year long. It used to be 
really until just a couple of years ago. It makes it sound like it was 50 years ago. But it used to be that most of the interaction from ACB to its members was that you could read the Braille Forum every month. That was okay and talked a lot about what was kind of going on. And you could come to the national convention, and that was good, or the leadership seminar. We used to call it the mid-year meeting. Now we get fined if we call it that. So I have to be very, very careful. And, and Eric, that's parenthetical. I didn't really say it. So. <laughs> but um, the, the leadership seminar in Washington, D.C., and the national conference, wherever it was, and the magazine were just about the only ways you knew about the organization. And WCB, as did most um, of the different affiliates would have some national representative come and tell you what was going on at the national level. And it was usually news to you. You usually didn't know anything about those things before that representative showed up. So there was a lot to tell, but now things are so different. One of the things that President Dan Spoon has inaugurated that was on my big wish list, and I was so glad he finally got it done for us, was that all of our board meetings are broadcast on ACB Media, and they are all available to you. It used to be that the board meetings were only available to you as summaries in the Braille Forum. And if you happened to have the ability to get to the convention or to that um, mid-year leadership meeting. And otherwise, you know, there was no access to the board meetings whatsoever. So now we have access to the board meetings. Our convention last summer was fully streamed. Our ACB Media Network has 10 channels now to carry um, different events on and podcasts on. And speaking of podcasts, we have so many podcast feeds now with convention material, affiliate material, special interest material. Uh, some of the community calls our podcast, so many things that are available in that form. And we have so much interaction with the information. Our resolutions process this year took an interesting turn. We actually, instead of working on resolutions in the middle of the night, I didn't know we could write resolutions without being in the middle of the night, but apparently you can. And ACB this year had meetings for several weeks, a couple of months prior to the convention to work on the resolutions. We had to do it this way because the board was empowered to vote for the resolutions this year since we had no way for members to vote on the resolutions, but we will in the future, so that's great. We do plan, uh, President Spoon has appointed a resolutions task force 2.0 that is going to be looking at revising the entire resolutions process. And one of the things that we learned was that it was very impactful to offer a process throughout the year for members to be engaged in developing resolutions. So that's what we're probably going to be moving toward. And then of course, bringing the voting on resolutions back to members. But we also think that resolutions need to really be relevant. After all, ACB has a full slate of work plan already on the books. So if we're going to add new tasks, we need to sort of count the cost about whether those tasks 
are available to us in terms of our resources. Do we have the resources to do this? Is it appropriate for us to do this? So rather than having resolutions just appear, we will in fact be trying to be more planful about how those resolutions will impact our work throughout the year. I'm encouraging affiliates to do this as well. So I'm encouraging WCB, rather than starting the resolutions process about a week before the convention, let's start the resolutions process process early. And in fact, let's consider resolutions throughout the year as they're relevant rather than saving them up for October or November and then hitting the whole world with them all at once. So that's exciting. Another significant change that occurred in ACB that you have been part of is the change of our voting forever and ever it has been required that you come to the national convention in July, wherever it is, no matter what it costs to vote. And you have to be there at the end of the week to do that. So you've probably been there all week. And by the way, I just wanna commend WCB for the fact that it has generally, resources permitting, supported its members to attend the national conference because there's no question that travel and lodging and food in another place other than home are all expensive things. And I just really think it's wonderful that ACB, I mean, that WCB WCB has supported this with its members. But last um, summer, at the end of the summer, as you mostly know, if you've been part of this for more than a few weeks, we had a special meeting to determine whether or not all members, regardless of their ability to attend the national convention, would be given the opportunity to vote. And we overwhelmingly voted that we would do that. I'm so glad we did. Now, this was kind of a personal panic for me because I had planned to sit out there in the audience with that little raise hand button you have and wait for my turn to vote on something like everybody else was going to do. And three days before the event occurred, I got a, an emergency call from President Dan Spoon saying that he was about to have major surgery. And oh, by the way, I won't be around on Sunday when we have the big meeting for the vote. And guess what that means when you're first vice president? Oh yeah, I had forgotten to read the fine print on that. So I was in a little bit of a panic, but what a wonderful experience for us to get to do that together and to make that change. And as we move forward and as we grow our membership and change our membership over time, some of these changes we're making now are gonna make a huge difference in that. So I'm thrilled to be part of ACB and WCB and to carry this forward and to help bring your interests and concerns to the forefront, both in terms of our legislative process and advocacy process, in terms of our governance process, and in terms of our organizational development. We are redefining in many ways what it means to be a membership-driven organization. And that is the challenge of the future as we develop more resources, develop more staff, develop more agendas, how we utilize our staff, how we utilize our resources, how we engage our members is a critically important factor. That's really 
the amount of stuff I have to share with you um, in terms of of an overall picture. And I'd like to spend the last couple minutes that we have in uh, taking any questions or comments that any of you have. Well, Sheila, do we have any hands up? Yes, hello, good morning, everybody. Um, I completely agree with, uh, with the resolutions. I am uh, particularly, I particularly agree um, the, the when when you mentioned getting resolutions um, adopted um, uh, as they come up, the first thing that came to mind was a couple of years ago. Actually, the very first uh, WCB convention I attended uh, back in 2018, there was an initiative on the ballot that uh, Tim Iman, our uh, resident anti-tax initiative pusher uh, proposed that uh, was ultimately struck down by the court, but uh, WCB ended up passing a resolution opposing that, but you know, the election was a week away. Right. So, right. Yeah, I completely agree that, yeah, that we should definitely look at, particularly with things like that. Yes. Yes. That's a great example, Bob. And I think the other thing about that is um, making our resolutions such that it's easy to understand them. Some of the resolutions, uh, frankly, I, I thought many of the topics of our resolutions for this year, and you'll be seeing them soon because a full report of the resolutions will be uh, coming out. But some of them are really hard to read. And I want resolutions to make their point, make it easy, easily, and then let the people who know how to implement them or who would be charged with implementing them figure out the exact process of it. But I think that um, if we could have had a resolution like the one you're describing back at the board meeting previous to the one at the convention, for example, and adopted it, um, then the people who would be charged with moving it forward would be able to do so. So that's a great example. And thanks for that. Yes, I'm actually I'm looking at the resolutions right now. So Okay, good. There you go. All right. I want to talk about two really cool resolutions. I love the idea of extending work about resolutions over the whole year. Um, because there's things that come up and also because there's things that should feed into the ACB budgeting process. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm attached now to two resolutions. One um, grew out of a bunch of blind people from both NFB and ACB griping on a Saturday night Zoom call about the difficulty getting accessible materials at CSUN at the largest assistive right. technology conference in the country. Um, both ACB and NFB approved topical resolutions. And the first ask is just, please make, please get your request out for accessible materials at, at the same time as the call for papers goes out. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And um, I'm very grateful that that was approved. Although, um, Deb, I did notice that after I went looking for the convention this year, out of like 100 presentations, many of which had PowerPoint, there were only four slides sets on the ACB site. So there's a, there's a like continuous improvement aspect to that. Right, but the, right. But the other one that I'm really excited about and I kind of stumbled into commitment, um, the Multicultural Affairs Committee brought a resolution asking ACB to 
do a lot more outreach specifically to Spanish-speaking people mm -hmm. and to um, figure out how what materials will right. to translate and to translate as much as possible. And mm -hmm. that's really exciting. I wonder, mm -hmm. do you have anything to... And the other part of that is by sounding semi-literate in Spanish on a Zoom call, I've now stumbled into work on the subcommittee that's implementing that resolution. So uh -huh, if you, good, there you go. <laughs> if, you think ums and, if you think ums and ers in your native language are a problem, <laughs> just try to just try to be semi-articulate in a second. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. I, I'd love to hear if you want to comment any more about that right now. It seems like sure. things are kind of just coming together. And I was on a call recently and I did my wake up the next day with 10 ideas problems. So, <laughs> so um, yes, I thank you for mentioning that one, Doreen, because that's actually one I meant to, to talk about and didn't. So thank you for that. Um, so we, we had lots of resolutions um, passed, but that one is an exciting one. And right now, what that resolution calls ACB to do is to figure out a plan and implement what we can. But because we are driven by the budget, uh, right. it's difficult to, you know, you can't just say, well, we'll just do anything. Um, that particular task group started out with some noble ideas that we told them we just wouldn't necessarily be able to implement. Like, for example, they said, the next person that ACB hires must be uh, bilingual Spanish. And we said, well, that might not work. I mean, that might not work for us. That might not work for that person. And they might. we might not hire, in that case, that person into a job that would have any time to do anything about Spanish language things. So, you know, you, you'd be making a statement, but you wouldn't be solving a problem. So we, we've done a lot of negotiation um, right. with, with that group around some of those things. So where we've ended up is we're looking at probably producing um, the Braille Forum audio and large print versions in Spanish as one of our first potential steps. Uh, we can, by the way, produce the Braille version in Spanish. We, we actually know we can do that. But we aren't sure if that's practical because we aren't sure whether that's an actual need, you know, for the people who, who, right. who need Spanish primary. So we need some data to know what will meet those needs the best. Um, some very, very simple, no-cost things that are happening are the Spanish language call on the community, right? And so uh, some things like that, that, that doesn't cost anything, but some people's time. So, so getting some of those things going um, and identifying uh, people in our organization who might be impacted, but also be being able to identify what people um, would be the best outreach. You know, where, where are we actually going to be outreaching? I know... Um, when I worked for uh, the state of Washington, uh, one of the things that um, I did was a regular program on the Spanish language network in our state. And uh -huh. uh, we used an interpreter for that whenever we didn't have native speakers to participate. But we that was a very effective way of reaching that community because often literacy in either language for reading yes. things is not high. So that's why also we've thought a little bit and talked about maybe the audio version of the of the Braille Forum, for example, 
would be one of the best ways to start because then that, of course, gets around the literacy thing. But what what do the people want? What do the people need access to? How do we get it to people in the best way and, and in a meaningful way? And factors in, but budget's not the primary motivator. It's just, you do have to account for it. So it's definitely one of the, we're, I'm really excited that the um, Multicultural Affairs Committee has really taken this on uh, in a serious way. And once we have a model for this, then we should be able, I would think, to extend that model to other groups and populations. And obviously strategies change depending on who you're outreaching to, but yeah. it would certainly seem that we could Good. So I, I'm very excited about this, and I think it's a big step forward for ACB, and it's about time. So yeah, yeah. No, I th I think I think it's a wonderful initiative. Um, a couple things that I'm going to just say that rattled out of my head. One would be um, there's such an overlap between blindness, diabetes, and higher risk for people of Latinx origin that I would think about ways to reach out to. American Diabetes Association and some of the Hispanic civil rights organizations and say, hi, we're here. Mm -hmm. I think, I think yeah. doing the Braille Forum in audio will immediately meet the needs of a lot of people sure. who lose vision later in life and right. don't, mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. don't read Braille. Right. Um, and, and your, the, your point about literacy in both languages is important. It's also right. Like, we need to actually move on. There's another hand. So perfect, if we can, perfect. if we can oh, do that, that'd be great. Cause I'm almost out of time. Okay. Thank you. Thanks, Darian. Yeah. Okay. Andy, you may unmute. Thank you. I, uh, I heard you talking about shortening the ACB convention to five days. Is there any, uh -huh. um, curriculum that you guys have looked at so far about that? Is it going to be like, Oh, no, 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 no. That's just me. Um, I, I, there are millions of people who are, I'll get hate mail from having just said that. <laughs> I'll have to convince a lot of people first. <laughs> yeah, there, there are, yeah, there, there's a lot that would have to be done. You know, the real challenge for the ACB convention, and I know my time's about up, but the real challenge for ACB is that our convention is the national convention plus the convention of all of our special interest affiliates. And what do we have about 18, I think. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, when the way we currently do it, um, we have trouble cramming it all into the eight days. So I think well, this is going to have to be an evolutionary process where we look at what works in the in-person, what, what will work better not being in-person. For example, I do know it's been publicly stated, so I th I'm comfortable saying this. The auction, the ACB auction, uh, is going to continue to stay virtual. It's not going to be at, so So right there, there's an evening um, of something we can do differently. So um, I think as time evolves, we have about three years of our current hotel contracts to figure out whether this is in fact the way we wanna to continue to do it. And if it is the way the members wanna to continue to do it, obviously we will, it won't matter whether I think differently, but I think as we are reaching out to younger people and as we are reaching out to older people, both groups, I think, excuse me, I think there's some call for looking at, as we're doing with everything else, how do we do our convention? How do we present our convention? And shorter, not to just make it shorter randomly, 
is a very bad idea because I know everybody's going to say, as long as you don't take out my part, you can shorten it. And I get that. So we have to think about this in a big strategy. But all I'm saying in making that comment at all is as we think outside the box and as we think of different possibilities, nothing is uh, truly in that respect sacred other than that we want to stay, you know, with our membership as the as the key driving force of the organization and we want to stay strong and nimble as the environment changes and that's that's really why i gave that example so in that light would there be a, a survey of all acb members well we've actually been surveying already we will continue to survey we survey every year after the convention and one of the questions on there is uh, relates to that topic so as we evolve the convention and we continue to ask people um we obviously don't make those kinds of decisions in a vacuum and we're not making it soon so don't panic um We may not be making it at all, but I'm just saying that we could um, and we should at least consider it because we get quite a bit of feedback that people say it would help them if we could figure that out. So um, so as we as we evolve, we could. But as we do anything else, we try to give our members opportunities to comment on them and talk about them. If you look at the voting process change that we just went through, it was a large task force that worked on this. They had call after call after call. You all had a meeting. I wasn't able to make it to it, but you all had a meeting with uh, Connie Sims, for example about the voting. Um, So I think it's really, really important since we can communicate readily. I think it's super important that we communicate and that we talk about possibilities and ideas and that they don't just come down from somewhere. So this isn't going to happen if it ever happens without your input and your knowledge. Thank you, Deb, so much for your um, words of wisdom and updating us on what's going on on the national level. Denise, if I could uh, just tag on to what Deb was talking about, just remind people that our community events, we have have held nearly 6,000. If you've not taken part in any of them, my question is why not? Uh, And you can certainly sign up for receiving the daily schedule by sending an email to community at acb.org. We are doing those seven days a week, regardless of holidays. And uh, it's just pretty amazing learning, growing, connecting. Okay, we can do a door prize. And uh, so uh, let's see, it would be this one. Our first door prize of the day is a $25 Amazon gift card donated by United Blind of Whatcom County. And it goes to Kim Mobird from Silverdale. Yeah. Yeah. You do one more real quick. All right, we can. Our next door prize drawing is donated by Snohomish County Council of the Blind. I have to say, I like it that they donated some food, some restaurant gift cards. Yeah. It's a $25 Olive Garden gift card. Pick a name, Raj. I'm picking mine. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, you try that. Pick yeah. mine. Pick mine. Well, pick me. Hey, I know this dude. Hi, Greg. Uh, 
Greg Hollins from Kansas City, Missouri. <laughs> oh, very good. Very good. Congratulations, Thank you. Greg. Thanks for coming to our convention. Yeah. <laughs> very cool. Thanks. Our next segment is um, we do this every year and it gets so much um, positive feedback. It's um, the segment that we have titled The Jobs People Do. Um, you know, the unemployment rate of those of us who are blind continues to be, uh, just continues to be deplorable and at, at a very high level. And so it's really fun when we can bring in people who are successfully employed and who can talk about how they got to where they are. So this year to moderate our Jobs People Do panel, please help me welcome Ms. Cindy Hollis. Cindy, and you can introduce your panel. I will be happy to do that. Thank you, Denise. And this is proof that uh, when we leave Washington, move away, we don't leave WCB. That's right. Uh, as Denise is in Texas and I'm in Michigan, and uh, we still love our affiliate in Washington. Uh, it One of the distinct uh, and unique opportunities now that we do so much virtually is that we can invite people to serve on panels that might not otherwise be present at our conventions. And this morning is no different. And I am just delighted that these three people have agreed to join us, all three very different fields. And so let me introduce the three of them. And uh, we have today, Chelsea Armstrong, she actually has lived in Washington most of her life, and uh, so many of you may remember her in Washington, but she now lives in Boise, Idaho, and she works as a test technician for Quality Logic. Larry Watkinson is Deputy Director of the Office of Equal Opportunity for Washington State Department of Transportation, and he's in Olympia, Washington. And Natalie Couch out of Louisville, Kentucky, is a customer service representative for Louisville Gas and Electric and Kentucky Utilities. So again, all three very different jobs and we are going to ask them to each share their journey to the current job they have. So we know, and boy, do I know that the job I have now is there's been a journey to get here. And so we're going to hear about each of their journeys, some of the challenges and maybe the advocacy that they've had to impart to get them where they are. And there should be time for Q&A at the end for any of our guests. So let's start with you, Chelsea, who, by the way, was my first student I ever worked with. Uh, so this is really sweet for me. Hi, Chelsea. Good morning. My name is Chelsea Armstrong. Um, oh, gosh. Where to begin? <laughs> um, 
I was born in San Diego. I had a, a brain tumor and um, lost my sight to that. I um, was not expected to live to my eighth birthday and my uh, tumor um, miraculously was um, it shrank by 65% and um, my dad was transferred uh, from San Diego to Bremerton, Washington. I was eight years old at the time and I was homeschooled along with my siblings in the middle of five. Um, homeschool was a challenge for me. I didn't really have that many friends that were close. Um, but then I got the opportunity to go to the Washington State School for the Blind in Vancouver. And that got me out of my little shy bubble. And I got my first job there um, as a secretary assistant. And I at first didn't know what to do with the phone receiver. I was so shy and I did not want to speak up, but I spoke up after a time and I enjoyed that so very much. Um, and then I went, um, volu not volunteered, excuse me. I went through the Youth Employment Solutions Program uh, one and two, the second one being in in Seattle, Washington through the summer and they couldn't get rid of me. <laughs> um, I did that program three times. The first time I went um, and worked at the Talking Book and Braille Library, rewinding books on tape. And then the next year I went to the uh, the Pacific Science Center. Yeah. yeah, and my favorite position there was the butterfly guard. I got to give the instructions not to touch the butterflies, but it's okay if they land on you. Um, <laughs> so that was a lot of fun. And then the third year, I worked in an office uh, the first part of the year. They didn't have enough work for me. I worked way too fast for them. And so I sat around for a good five hours with nothing to do. So um, the first time I really had to speak up about finding a job change, um, I went to Alan Garrels and said, you know, I really love what I'm doing, but they don't have enough for me. Uh, is there a new way that I could switch, job, switch jobs? And he said, yeah. So I got moved up to the 27th floor of this big old tower, <laughs> downtown Seattle. And they had lots of office work for me to do. Um, and that was my favorite because I felt welcomed and appreciated. Um, so, um, I graduated in 2007 from high school and, um, I, um, 
started out at, as volunteering in the back room of the piano tuning school, which is unfortunately no longer in business. Um, but my grandma got me into tuning pianos. She said, why don't you? Um, she had a blind tuner that uh, her parents had come over and tuned their grand piano. And so I hopped quickly into that. Um, I started a two-year program, which taught tuning, repairing, <laughs> and the um, ins and outs of running a business, starting a business plan. That part, I wanted to fall asleep on. <laughs> I was not interested in starting my own business. I wanted to work for somebody. Um, I actually got a job offer in Alabama, and I almost took that on, but... Um, I did not because I didn't want to be far away from my family. Family means so much to me. And I think that would have really been hard on the whole family if I had moved all the way out there. And um, I later learned that they didn't pay very well. So whew, I'm glad I, I, I didn't do that. Um, we all have choices in life. Um, and then... My grandma passed away, and she was my best friend, and I hit this really low depression, deep, deep depression, and um, I basically um, didn't know what to do with my life, and I didn't know what um, job to really pursue. I ended up working for the piano uh, tuning school for a little bit, but um, decided tuning wasn't really my cup of tea. So I ended up moving back to Bremerton um, and staying there. And um, I did a little bit of volunteer work at the Talking Book and Braille Library. And then uh, fast forwarding, I went um, and applied for a um, the orientation training program uh, that is run by DSB. And um, I was there for nine months and I gained back my confidence and my drive for life. And I actually got to work at YES, uh, Youth Employment Solutions in Seattle. And um, I was the one cleaning up after all the kids. Uh, they would spill soda, I got to mop it up when they all went to bed. So that was fun. It was a, a great opportunity to um, love on some kids that um, may not have had that love growing up. And then I um, went from there and I applied for the Lighthouse for the Blind. It wasn't really a job that my parents were behind. My dad really wanted me to go through college, but um, I went to the Lighthouse for the Blind in Seattle, and I worked two and a half years on the assembly line making um, hydration packs for the military. And 
after a while, it was really hard uh, to be in a loud environment, and I began to have very bad migraines. And so um, last summer, in fact, my sister called and said, you need to quit. And I said, excuse me? <laughs> she said, yeah, you need to quit. So um, after coming back from Idaho to Washington from celebrating my sister's birthday, I ended up putting in my notice and I then was unemployed and trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Um, and I knew I wanted to work behind the scenes. I wanted to have something that wasn't repetitive help the community as a whole. Um, so I ended up finding myself coming back to Idaho last October in the beginning uh, for my grandpa's burial service. And I met with a dear friend. She told me about this job she just got um, hired on to. And it was testing websites for accessibility issues and that was my aha moment that I had been waiting for <laughs> for over 10 years I was I knew that that aha moment was going to come but I didn't know when it would come and I was just hoping it would be soon um, and so I came back and I wrote the the manager and I expressed my interest and basically I was told um, they didn't have any remote work for me right now but they would let me know when they had something well I wasn't going to give up I said well I'm willing to move there and I'm willing to pay the expense on my own and uh, because I'm really interested in this line of work and I didn't hear anything for a week and I thought do I keep pressing the issue <laughs> so I thought yes if I'm really willing to go I'm going to write them again and say I'm still interested so I did and the next day I had a, an interview with one of the team managers and she said that I'd be a great fit and I was really excited. She said that there were two people in front of me uh, so she'd get back to me in a week and I thought, no, I'm not gonna hear from them. <laughs> but two days later, um, a year from yesterday, I got the call asking if I would like to accept the job and I said yes and I had two days to pack up my bags and fly out to Idaho get settled <laughs> figure out where I was gonna stay um, and my grandparents or I stayed with my grandma she wasn't too sure about me uh, staying with her she would have to drive me around well she thought that um she would have Kelsey, to i'm gonna need you to wind it up a little bit so okay yeah um so 
I ended up staying with her for six months and um, I am absolutely loving my job and going on a year and I am now able to work from home. Um, it's very temporary, but I asked them um, and it was a really scary thing to do because I am not good at um, asking, <laughs> um, but they said yes, and I'm working from home until probably the spring, and um, I'm just really grateful for my job. Uh, the environment is wonderful and supportive, and I feel like I'm thriving finally. So thank you so much for the time, and Thank you, Chelsea. Uh, yes. And I want you to stick around because we may have questions. One of, one of the things I will say is what I remember is you, before you even quit your job at the Lighthouse, you said you wanted to move to Idaho. That was like one of your dreams. So the fact yeah. that this job, it, it's pretty amazing and um, that you ended up Please, having no, this the Lower add button. Um, all right. Uh, we're going to move to Larry, and I, is he unmuted? Yes, ma'am. Larry is unmuted. Hi um, there, Larry. Good morning, and I am really sorry. No, um, don't worry about it. Let's just jump right in. Every time I got put over to Palace, I got kicked it's out. It's Larry. So, hi. Um, yeah. <laughs> the topic is to talk about my current position, or do you want a summary? I want your journey to your position now. And, and I'm going to try to do that in, very rapidly. Um, okay. First of all, I... Uh, I graduated from the Washington State School for the Blind in Vancouver, and I worked in the private sector retail area for a, uh, for a few years. I went through a very serious illness uh, called Guillain-Barre, where I was paralyzed. And after I recovered after nearly a three-year journey, um, I went to college and earned my associate arts degree, subsequently earned a Bachelor of Arts degree in tried to enter back into the government services area and worked a couple legislative sessions as committee staff. And that was not looking real well because of in, in around that time, the economy was not doing super well. So I jumped into the business enterprise program with the Washington State Department of Services for the Blind and actually joined my wife, Kathy, uh, as a blind vendor and worked in that industry from about 1990 uh, through about 2005. Um, and at that point, we had endured a earthquake in 2001, um, a uh, World Trade Center reduction bombing in 2001. Um, and our businesses took dramatic changes here in Olympia just due to security. And it's amazing how something like that so far to the other side of the country would have be so impactful. But it was. And our business never really shaped up to where it was going to uh, be a recovery. But what I want you to know here about this juncture here is this. If you position your career in such a way that you choose to be a sandwich maker, that is a great career. But don't ever limit yourself to where you have to be a sandwich maker. So having made that statement, and that is, is that you're never limited in what you set your mind to do. And I loved making sandwiches, but I knew from my family that it was not the best opportunity for me. And I was not doing a whole lot 
adding towards retirement. So I went and got a job with state government and the Department of Licensing. I immediately went to work on earning a master's in public administration and was working in the Department of Licensing where I managed the driver suspensions unit. And that is your very worst drivers who get DUIs or negligent driving, other things, end up losing their driving privileges. I managed what was called the court services unit. Our staff of 30 was responsible for going to court and testifying. I got the duteous honor of going out and testifying on some of the worst cases, vehicle or homicides, vehicle or assaults, where it ended up being in serious trauma or death. And those cases were both emotionally really kind of draining, and they required a higher level of management to do those cases because of the complexity in the days that you had to be on the road. But what I really liked is going to court was the person who oftentimes would represent themselves as their own pro se attorney. And you know what? They hired one of the dumbest attorneys to represent themselves because I would love it. They would testify, you just don't know what it's like to not drive. You just don't know what it's like to drive. And of course, I would never disclose that I did not drive. And so I would go to court. They would be there to represent themselves. And I would just kind of sit there internally chuckling to myself about how they had to eat crow. It was a fun job. Uh, I loved it. Um, but an opportunity came in 2015 um, for me to move into uh, my current position at the Washington State Department of Transportation. And in that particular job, I work in what's called the Office of Equal Opportunity. This is in the division where we actually work with minority women-owned businesses to do some of the contractual work on our heavy construction projects, building Washington State ferries um, for us, as well as consultative work in some of the areas we do work in. My specific day-to-day -day mode of operation is I supervise that staff um, in that program area. Um, I am responsible for the human resource functions of our office, as well as I'm responsible for putting together our $16 million budget uh, for our division. But my passion uh, is I am the person who is responsible for the agencies Americans with Disability Act implementation, Title II and Sections 504. Those other jobs within the eight division I talked about really um, became duties that I got assigned because I was invited to be the deputy director of the division, a position for which I did not apply. But the position I did apply for in 2015 was to actually implement the agency's ADA transition plan. When I got there, the plan that I was going to implement did not exist. I immediately became responsible for writing an ADA transition plan that affects the pedestrian activities and involvement of programs and services for people who touch the face of our department. We have successfully done that. I also wanted to make sure that in that transition plan that it was readable, functional, and that it worked. I probably have the shortest transition plan in the country of 30 some pages. It was not done with a million dollar consultant. It was done with my excellent team that I have working for me um, in, in that respect. They make me look good. Now, in the implementation of this plan on a day-to-day -day basis, I'm responsible for uh, example, Washington State Ferries making sure that you have 
complete and full access. And if you don't, my office works to solve those kind of issues. I've been a very much of a partner with the right sizing of our external website. On November 6th, our agency will be launching a new website. Some of you on this meeting today, and I know folks in the National Federation of the Blind have actually been testers of this uh, website for us. And so we have worked with a consulting company to make sure that we're using real people doing real testing as it's called for in the WC3.org structure. Use users to validate what you do. And so I've been really excited to be a partner in that. Now, a lot, some of you know that uh, me and I know Cindy and other folks say, when I say, hey, I had a computer store or I worked in a boat store, or, I did this. What I challenge you all to do is live what you want to learn. Learn what you want to live. I have volunteered while I had a vending facility and many jobs. I went and learned how to repair a small boat motor engine. I learned how to sell boats. I learned how to uh, do many, many different tasks through volunteer efforts, through nonprofit organizations, and through businesses that I knew here in Olympia where I wanted to learn something. And it's the culmination of that that has gotten me to the career I have today. And I will just tell you this, um, I every time a vending facility comes available, even though we're in a bad economy with, uh, with the pandemic being closed, I will tell you, I have passion around making sandwiches and you never know. I may go back and do that as a part of my career uh, as I get done, you know, as I do what I'm going to do. But I challenge you uh, as, a, as, as a prospective employee of an organization, today is the day to be looking at state government as an opportunity to you for you to expand your opportunities um, in, in, in the public sector world. It's as pressuring on you as sometimes being a business owner, depending on where you go in your organization. And I will just say to you, I have an exciting job where I feel good about getting up and getting on a conference call in Washington, D.C. at five o'clock in the morning. And every once in a while, I can fit in the uh, community groups at six o'clock that Cindy hosts uh, um, out here. And that resects. But I'm excited to go to work um, each day. Um, in that respect. And so, Cindy, because of time, I'm going to give it yeah. back to you. I'm hoping to answer any questions. Thank you. All right. Thanks, Larry. Natalie, let's go to you. Thank you so much for being here. And talk to us about working for a utility company and how did you get there? What's your journey? Okay. Um, can you all hear me? Because I've been having issues. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. Um, so, good morning and good afternoon, everyone. So, um, I am originally from Illinois. Um, and my journey to employment started out, um, I did some work in telemarketing, um, which was a horrible job, but I did that for two years until the, um, place closed. And then, um, after that, I was job seeking for a while and got an internship, um, at the Chicago lighthouse for the blind. Um, and I, did some work. We did some work with the state um, and um, like inputting social security numbers to find out who um, was receiving food stamps and some things like that. Um, and but that job was not I was basically testing it to see if it could be done by a totally blind person. Um, and they said that I was not 
quick enough through no fault of my own, but it was an ancient DOS system and um, it just, it didn't work out very well. So after seven months of interning at the lighthouse, um, I moved back to my little small town in Illinois and was trying to figure out what I was going to do. And in August of 2010, um, because I was drawing unemployment and they make you apply for jobs, I had been website searching and saw something in through Bosma Enterprises out of Indianapolis. And so um, I applied to them, not thinking anything was going to happen. I sent in my application at like 10 o'clock on a Friday night and um, like Monday morning at nine, um, I had gotten a call and asked if I could do a phone interview the next day. So um, I did this phone interview for a job in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, It was at a call center. Um, We were contracted for Humana Military. So we did um, insurance for military people. Um, And I told myself it was kind of crazy to move to a different state for a call center job, but I went ahead and did the interview. Um, And then by the end of that week, um, I had gotten the call asking if I would come to Indianapolis to do some, um, you know, show them that I knew how to use JAWS, how to do all that sort of thing. So um, I did that and then got offered the job while I was there doing that. So um, I basically had about two weeks to um, rearrange my life and figure out where I was going to live. But during those two weeks, I also was attending the Midwest Leadership Conference in St. Louis for the American Council of the Blind. So I had sent my mom to Louisville thinking I was going to look to live somewhere. Uh, She was going to go sign all my stuff for my apartment for me. And then I get a phone call in the middle of one of the meetings saying, you're not going to live where you think you are. So that was a little scary. But um, so that all worked out. I moved to Louisville in 2000, I guess it was 2011. Sorry. Um, So I moved to Louisville in 2011 in September. um, And I worked for Humana Military for um, almost eight years. Um, And then one of my friends um, who is also visually impaired had told me that um, he had a job at LGE and um, they were looking for other visually impaired people. So um, I applied, um, got an interview, and I have been working there since 2019. Um, call center work is not that, like, that's not really my passion, but when I was living in Illinois, I was in such a, you know, it was a little town. We had no public transportation. The only way I could do anything was to rely on my sighted parents and friends. And that was not really the kind of life that I wanted. So I knew I had to do something um, to get out of that situation. And um, I am very glad that I got this opportunity to move to Louisville because it has made me grow a lot more. It's made me become um, a lot more confident. Um, I'm doing things that I didn't think I would. Um, it it allowed me to meet and marry my husband. And it's just, um, I'm, even though I don't really like my job, it, it, it is given me a lot of opportunities. So I'm very grateful for it in that aspect. All right. 
And uh, I was hoping you were going to mention Joey somewhere in there. Uh, so. <laughs> okay, that's great. Thank you, Natalie. I'm going to ask a quick question. And then certainly if you have a question in the audience for any or all of our, um, our presenters, you can raise your hand. Can each of you just share quickly uh, what kind of assistive technology or accommodations you use in your daily job? Who would, wants to go first? I use job access with Windows Speech JAWS. Um, I, I'm lucky in the sense that what visual assistance I need to well when we used to work in the office, um, I have some executive assistance type uh, support. If I did not have that, I would probably be using the resource of a reader, even though we're trying to make things more accessible um, with overlaying calendars uh, in Microsoft to schedule meetings. And so I would probably use those levels of services. But because of the level where I'm at, I have a level of administrative support to where um, I have that done as a result of what I do. I think the important part about the accessibility for me, Cindy, it really comes down to this, and that is, is that figure out what you need, be articulate about what you need, and in a respectful way, be willing to advocate for what it is you do need to do the job. All right, thanks, Larry. Um, I'll go next. So I also use JAWS. Um, I also use a Braille display because since I'm on the phone, you know, reading information and checking correct information, um, mm -hmm. that is very hard to do while <laughs> listening to customers and JAWS. So I do use a Braille display. Um, and like Larry said, it is important to advocate because right now my job is very, um, it's, it's based on a lot of JAWS scripting. So when, um, like, for example, everything that I learned was scripted for Google Chrome. So then when my work decided to change to Microsoft Edge, um, we had to re-script everything. So like Larry said, it is important to um, advocate and, and make sure that all of your things are going to work. Perfect. Chelsea, how and are you? I also use JAWS. Um, that's just one out of a bunch of screen readers that I use, but the most expensive. <laughs> All right. Sanine, if I could quickly just sort of say something, and that is, is that for newly blind, um, you know, when I was a child, I did some Braille reading. I am not a Braille reader due to my uh, sickness that I articulated with you guys a little earlier. And I, and I have not been able to, in the feeling of my hands, really do that. I can still work a keyboard. And so for those of you who are newly blind or have not yet acquired the skill of Braille um, in that respect, don't be afraid to pursue the career that you want. Um, you can use alternative ways with a tape recorder and digital recording and other stuff like that. And you can, you can, you can survive that, but you have to work differently as a result of some of my Braille reader friends. But the important message I want to give you is you have a career regardless of your skills if you're willing to take yourself into that next adventure. And I wanted to ask Chelsea to, to uh, continue on. Do you, you said it's one of the screen readers you use. So for your job, are you required to use other screen readers? Yes. So I use, um, in addition to JAWS, I use NVDA and uh, VoiceOver, both on the Mac and on um, iPhone. 
and talk back on an Android. All right. Um, Chelsea, my question is for you. Um, so I've been looking for some accessibility testing jobs for a while now, uh, about a year now. Um, and a lot of what I'm finding is they are requiring a degree in like computer science and they're really um they're really requiring you to have an underlying knowledge of the programming that is going on it it, it, it almost seems like they want a degree in computer so science let's let's let chelsea respond quickly because we we don't have much time so chelsea why don't you just touch quickly because i know you've helped others also get a job where you work yeah so quality logic does not require that you have a degree they only require that you know um most of the technology that they work with. Um, I did not know Mac when I got there, but I quickly learned how to use it because I had to, um, especially that first week. But um, you just need to know how to be able to type and to use the different technologies that are out there. And I know that you've said um, they are hiring in Idaho and Oklahoma, right? Um, I'm not exactly sure if they are right now, but you can also look on qualitylogic.com. They are always updating and always looking for different um, fields out there. And like many jobs, um, you may need to move to That's for right. a job, right? So yes, thank you, Bob. Who's Melissa? There? Melissa Hudson, you may unmute. Um, thank you. Can you hear me? Yeah. All right. Very good. Um, Chelsea, I just want to quickly just say from one friend to another, I'm so proud of you um, for taking that step to just move out of out of one state and move to another state. Um, I worked with you at the Lighthouse and you were a wonderful employee there, but I knew that it was time for you to make a change and for me to make a change. So I just want to say I'm proud of you. But my question is specifically for Natalie. I now work in customer service remotely from home. And I'm just wondering, um, how did you overcome the barrier of like the different programs that you use, if any, uh, with JAWS? Because I'm dealing with that right now as we speak. Uh, and thank you very much. Um, so the Humana Military site, when I first, when I moved here, Humana Military was pretty much straightforward. Um, it was it was basically just a, a web design. So there weren't really many accessibility issues for that. Um, the job that I currently have um, is all JAWS scripted because it was not accessible. Um, so LG&E actually works with a JAWS scripter who comes in at least twice a year. Um, and anytime there's any changes to the programs that we use, um, he comes back and we have to rewrite all of the um, JAWS scripts, which means time off the phone when I get to watch those stupid customer service videos about how to talk to people correctly and things like that. Um, but I don't like that it is so JAWS scripted because anytime anything breaks, then or they change, you know, one little HTML thing changes, then um, it, it is an issue. But um, 
right now, um, the only way we can overcome those is just by doing a lot of JAWS scripting. All right. Thank you. I don't think we're going to have any more time. If I'm if I'm looking at the time correctly, Denise, am I to give you a little time for door prizes or? Yes. Yes. Do we have two more door prizes? All right. So uh, thank you to Chelsea, Larry, and Natalie. And thank you, everyone in uh, this convention for giving us the opportunity to share these three success stories. And we'll be back next year. Thank you. Thanks, Cindy, for once again bringing us a great employment panel. All right. Are we ready for a couple more door prizes real quickly? Sure. Why not? Let's why not? try this one. This door prize is a $10 Starbucks gift card donated by myself and my husband, Reg and Lisa George. Go ahead, Sally. Pick a name. Oh, my goodness. We have some long-distance attendees. attendees here. <laughs> this is for Eugene Batkey. From Clearwater, Florida. All right. So he's probably the furthest one out. Congratulations, (laughs) Eugene. And one more. And one more. All right. Our next door prize drawing is a $25 Walmart gift card donated by the United Blind of Walla Walla. Okay, Frank. Let's see what we got here. Digging deep. We got Rick Lewis from oh Clarkston. Oh, well, we've got Walmart. That's the, one of the few yeah, things we have. Got Walmart so. Clarkston, huh? Yeah, we do. <laughs> there you go. Well, thank you, everyone, for allowing me this opportunity to be your presiding officer for this first segment of our second day of convention. And now it gives me great pleasure to turn the virtual podium over to Reg George, um, ACV board member, to bring you the next uh, group of presenters. So, Reg. And a good morning to everybody um, across the country. So happy to have you guys here with us today. I believe our next panel is going to be from APH, and uh, I don't know who is here to introduce that. Um, So I'm gonna let you guys introduce yourselves and tell us what you're gonna talk about today. All right, well, good morning. Can you you hear me? Yes, sound great. Thank you, and Pris Rogers, are you there? I am here, Richard. All right, so I'm gonna hand it off to you in a minute and then I'll do the Career Connect stuff. Was that our our game plan? Career, yeah, sure. Okay, oh no, I was just asking Pris a quick question, okay. Yeah, you're gonna do Career Connect and Family Connect and stuff. Perfect, so I'll I'll just kick us off. Well, good morning, Washington, ACB. I just got back off the plane, figuratively speaking, (laughs) from uh, Ohio and Indiana, and they were actually in person. So that was kind of really strange, being at a hybrid convention while they were eating lunch and talking and having hearing the audience. So I hope you guys in Washington, because I know you guys can roar and, and be loud, even virtually. So I hope you guys can do it out, out there and out beat Indiana and Ohio, um, which was a great presentation. 
Uh, Chris Rogers and I are pleased to be presenting to you today on the APH Connect Center. And we'll, over the next 30 minutes uh, or less, tell you all about that. And, and Chris will kick us off here in a minute. And I will wrap with uh, Career Connect and Family Connect. And if we uh, get done in 20 minutes or less, we'll uh, welcome your questions. So uh, again, this is Richard Rutha, the new digital content manager for Career Connect. And uh, we've got Chris Rogers, one of our vision aware uh, contributors and uh, all-time awesome person who knows more about Vision Aware than anyone else. Pris, good morning and take it away. Hi, Richard. Thank you very much. I don't know whether I know more, but I got started on it about a decade ago. So if I don't know something, I'm in bad shape, right? <laughs> um, I'm First of all, I want to talk a little bit about the Connect Center, the APH Connect Center. And all you have to remember during this whole presentation to find anything we talk about is to go to aphconnectcenter.org. That's your mantra, aphconnectcenter.org, because there you will find all of the resources that we're going to talk about, including the websites and the Transition Hub and webinars and everything else. So uh, we're really glad that we have this this um, Connect Center because it's a really great way for people to get the information they need and to find the information they need. So uh, through these websites and the directory and through the INR line that we have available uh, through the Connect Center, people are able to either find online what they need or get answers by calling someone to find out answers. And as many of you probably know, when you first lose vision, trying to find those answers, knowing where to start uh, is really, really critical because you don't know what to do. And so uh, we hope that through the Connect Center, we are able to be that hub to help people find those answers, to find wonderful places like the Council of the Blind, uh, to find the services for the blind throughout the country that they may need. So that was the whole idea of starting this whole Connect Center. And the idea behind when we started Vision Aware several years ago, Vision Aware uh, is the website that I'm involved with. And we just recently added Katie Frederick, who is from the Ohio uh, Council of the Blind, who's American Council of the Blind, who's starting with us. She just started this week. So that's why I'm doing this today. But we're we're now co's on, on Vision Aware. But anyway, so Vision Aware was started with the idea of providing hope, help, and connection. And we have all kinds of information on that website for people needing to learn about everyday living, about support groups, about uh, working. We have some information about working mostly for older adults. We don't try to get into the stuff that Career Connect is doing or the Transition Hub, but we have information for older adults. We have information for seniors who are seeking uh, what they should be doing. We also have environmental adaptations that people can make to make their homes and environments safe. We talk about uh, rehabilitation, vision rehabilitation, and orientation mobility and low vision, all those things that people really need to understand and what they mean to them in their lives. So I hope that you will vision, uh, will visit Vision Aware. Uh, what we try to do is to set it up in, we think, important buckets of information that have all those things that I just talked about. We also have a couple of blogs on Vision Aware. Vision Aware has a great group of people called, called our Vision Aware peers. And they're made up about 25 to 30 
individuals who have worked with us now, a lot of them for over a decade, in writing about their experience of living with vision loss in all kinds of different ways. And they come from all walks of life. We have nurses, we have artists, we have authors, we have O&M specialists, we have assistive technology specialists, we have rehab teachers, we have college professors, you name it. We've got the whole gamut and it's a great group of people. So if you will come to Vision Aware and read some of the information that they have uh, written about, I think it would uh, really uh, be helpful and, and uh, send people our way. So I'm gonna um, talk just a little bit about the Connect Center and the other resources and I'm gonna turn it over to Richard, so because we do want to leave some time for questions. I know you're going to have questions after all this. Um, on the Connect Center, we have an INR line, information referral line, and we have two people that staff that, and it's staffed Monday through Friday, and we even staff it into the evening so that we can catch people on the West Coast. Uh, because we know it's so critical for people when they need help, they need to have somebody there. So we had people calling in from all over asking really, uh, really incredible questions about what they can do, how they can find help and services. Uh, some of the questions they ask are just is totally blow you away. But it's wonderful that we have these two individuals, <clears throat> Alan, Sharon, who are available to answer the questions. And we also have an email. Uh, for that site. And what I will do when I finish speaking, I will put in the chat the, the 800 number and the email for the Connect Center. And if you know of anybody who can use that service, uh, please refer them our way. Um, we also have an event calendar on the Connect Center. So if you have an event coming up that you want to uh, let people know about, you can actually put the event up yourself. And that's a real helpful thing. We're trying to have an event calendar that will cover the whole field, basically. Uh, anybody looking for anything going on in the country will be able to find it. That's our goal. Um, we also have the Directory of Services. And that Directory of Services has been around for longer than I've been in the field. And I'm not going to tell you how long I've been in the field. But it started out as a book. And I can remember when that book was probably two inches thick, but thank goodness. We like were a phone book. It was bigger than yeah, the phone book. It was a phone book. It really was about it. <laughs> so now, of course, it's online and we have it divided up into different types of areas. For example, uh, Vision Aware would have uh, stuff for adults and Family Connect, which we're we'll talk about, would have more stuff uh, devoted to parents and kids. And Career Connect uh, mostly has adult stuff, but it also has some additional information that would be helpful for, for people looking for jobs and that sort of thing. So it's 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 a really, we hope, a pretty inclusive type of directory. And it's the only one that I know of throughout the, the country, and it, and it includes Canada as well. So uh, if somebody's looking for a service, uh, that's that's a good place to start. Of course, everything, nothing's as good as, I mean, everybody has to update it themselves. So we want people to be looking at it and making sure that the information is correct. But it, like I said, it's a really great place to start. So with all of that, um, I'm going to turn the program over to Richard to talk about Career Connect and all the other things that he wants to talk about. So Richard, take yeah. it away. Um, thank you, Pris. And do and folks, do get your questions ready. I'll, I'll try to wrap this in 10 minutes. We have 10 minutes to talk. Um, and, and like Pris said, I'm, I'm really thrilled that as the Connect Center is expanding, uh, we do have Katie Frederick, who a lot of you in ACB land know as the uh, chair of the Board of Publications uh, on the board and has been around for a while. So you, know, you have her ear. She's 
she was uh, hosting me last hour when I talked to Ohio and Indiana, so she can't be with us, but uh, um, she, she gives us our, your greetings and, and wants to hear from you as she expands Vision Aware. So please join us as we do that. Um, you know, another way to think of the Connect Center and all the things that we do, and I like to say, uh, you know, with a smile, is think of us as the Wikipedia of blindness. In fact, Wikipedia doesn't even stand a chance to what the Connect Center has on all things blindness, from careers to childhood development to elder care. We've got it all. And that's that's what's really impressive. I mean, together, I was reading, we have the, the largest collection of information on blindness through our Connect Center resources and coupled with what we do at APH. So it's really exciting that we're here, we're expanding, and we want to hear from you, the community. Um, I want to talk to you uh, briefly about Career Connect, and I don't know uh, if you all have the ability to raise your hand, but just raise your hand at home if you've heard of Career Connect in the past. And if you haven't heard of Career Connect, I'm here to tell you all about it. Years ago, uh, many of the Connect Center resources, you know, Vision Aware, Family Connect, Career Connect, and the INR line, Directory of Services, were all part of AFB. And we're coming on almost four years now that they have been with uh, APH. And one of the important things I want to illustrate is if you're going to Career Connect and you don't find it on the Connect Center or you haven't thought together, what you do want to do is put APH in front of Career Connect. So this is what I do, putting the APH in Career Connect, because if you go to careerconnect.org, you're not going to find it. Uh, and we're trying to remedy that, but that's out of our control. But go to APHCareerConnect.org. And if for the job seeker, uh, for the person in high school, the scholarship winners out there, if you're looking for your first work experience, go to APH Career Connect. If you're 25, you're right out of college, you're looking for your first job, go to APH Career Connect. If you're 35 and you're tired of your current job and you want a new job, yes, you know, go to APH Career Connect. And if you're 62 or you're retired, but you want a you know, part-time job and you're looking how to get back into the workforce, go to APH Career Connect. That's, that's what we exist for, to provide you with the resources and tools that can empower you to really think about employment at all aspects of life for the young and for the old, because we all deserve the opportunity to, to uh, contribute in any way we can. And, and I know it can be a real daunting subject. Uh, one of the big products that we have up on APH Career Connect is our Job Seekers Toolkit. Uh, currently, it's up in a PDF format. We do hope to put it into a learning management system where you can pull down uh, the activities you want. Um, it's for the job seeker. It's for the students in school. It's for the rehabilitation professional. It helps you identify the areas of your job search that you need assistance with. Do you need help building a resume? Do you need help putting a cover letter together? Do you need help identifying what's the appropriate dress attire? And how do you interview for a job during the pandemic times or on Zoom or as we go forward as more jobs are going to be remote? As, as a lot of the folks said in the last panel, they're working remote and, and, and doing things on Zoom and Teams. How do you make sure you've got good lighting? We, we address that in the Job Seekers Toolkit and everything we do on Career Connect. Um, and again, it's free. And it's just the only cost is your curiosity. Um, we have a maintaining employment guide. That's for people who are, re, you know, re job retention, people looking to maintain their jobs, or if they're trying to promote within their job, we address that in our maintaining employment toolkit. That's being updated, but it, it's it's out there. It's it's going to be uh, really good information to use. Um, 
one of the other things like we do at APH Career Connect, like Vision, where we have blogs and we have blogs from peers, uh, job seekers, like those of you out there who are searching for jobs, jobs, uh, you know, people that are looking for jobs that are struggling, that can really tell the truth on what 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 are their challenges and what are their successes. We 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 really feature a lot of blogs for the job seeker at all aspects, and and that, those are good because we want those blogs to be for you and about you, not just from the professionals, but from all voices. Uh, we have uh, blogs on diversity and um, equity and inclusive inclusion, uh, people from all walks of life, all cultures, uh, gender identities and everything, and, and blogs about getting their first job. Uh, we wrote one up in March with some young folks who are entering the workforce, and it, it was a four-piece blog. Really, really good information. Um, we had a big summit a few weeks back and we're doing a second half of that summit in about a week and a half on mentoring because mentoring is such a big part of what we do, uh, role models and connecting with folks like people on that job panel a few minutes ago who you can look up to and identify with and say, hey, how do I get there? And, and so we're addressing mentoring through a mentoring summit through folks with policy works uh, and folks at the national level. And we're going to continue that conversation. Uh, we're inviting folks from a ACB, NFB, AFB, AER, you know, the alphabet soup to work with us on addressing how mentoring can look in the 21st century and really make it something that you can grasp and get a hold of. And so we want you to be a part of that. Let me see here. Uh, we have blogs on juggling the college experience. Uh, we have an advisory committee, and we're, we're doing with that advisory committee. It consists of adults, uh, teachers of the visually impaired, rehabilitation counselors, college disability student services, and soon we're going to add peer uh, job seekers on that. And it, it helps us build content. It helps us build webinars and really reach out to you in the community to ask what you want and what's missing from Career Connect. So we can really help you identify that transition from school to work, from work to, you know, from college and college to work in, in all aspects. Um, we have video success stories. So one of the cool video success stories we have up there is Russell Schaefer. Uh, he sounds familiar because he's on the board of APH, but he's also at Walmart up in the executive level. And he himself is blind and he talks to us about his struggles uh, with blindness and getting his first job. And that interview is up there. Uh, some of you may know the name Joe Streche. He was a part of Career Connect for quite a while. And he did that interview before he went on to uh, the film industry and doing consulting. Uh, and so that's up there. Uh, Dr. Mona Mankara, who's a chemistry uh, PhD uh, ha from Northeastern University, was interviewed by me earlier this summer. And that video is going to go up. So if you're empowered and you want to learn how to be uh, and work in the field of sciences and chemistry, go listen to that video. Uh, one of the things we're going to be launching here in a few months is something I call Career Conversations, and it's very similar to what's already out there in certain venues. We're going to meet with blind job seekers and blind professionals to have them interviewed by myself and by job seekers so you can hear uh, firsthand what their struggles were, what their challenges were, and what ultimately their successes were. So I will be interviewing them. We will be doing that in real time live, and we'll be doing that at least once or twice a month, probably starting in January. And that'll be one more forum for you, the job seeker, and just the supporter, the curious individual to meet blind professionals from all over the world, all over the United States, locally, regionally, to hear about what, what's going on there. Uh, authors, doctors, lawyers, teachers, you got it. We're going to interview you. 
Um, get ready for your questions. Uh, we're about to do some questions here. Uh, I'm going to look at my notes here. Pris, uh, is there anything else you want to add? Yeah, I forgot to mention our webinars. Duh. Yes, there you go. <laughs> yes, we have a, a, on the a Connect Center, we host a, a number of webinars. And for VisionAware, for example, uh, we're doing a whole series on diabetes. And on November 17th, we'll be having um, a webinar. Uh, it's a Q&A on medications. We have two archive webinars that we've already done that are up on medications, both the oral ones and the injectables for people uh, to take. And the Q&A is to help people answer those questions. So that's uh, it's for people with vision loss or family members, uh, professionals, whomever wants to come. Also, we're doing a gift webinar on yes. November 19th. <laughs> Yay, yes. Um, so those are the couple of things that are coming up on Vision Aware. Uh, Richard, I think you mentioned a couple of things too. So. Yeah, I've got we've got the mentoring webinar uh, summit on uh, November 10th, and uh, go to APH Connect Center uh, there, or you can email me at rreda. That's rreda at aph.org. I'll put that in the chat box, and I'll send it out to the panelists uh, and Julie. Um, Let's see. Oh, and we uh, we have another webinar on the 10th of November at 4 Pacific because you good people are on the West Coast. Uh, it's the benefits of working and um, maintaining your SSI and SSDI. Karen Schroeder, who's also an ACB member here in Sacramento, uh, is, um, is a Social Security specialist with rehabilitation. And she's going to talk to us about the ABLE Act, uh, benefits, maintaining your work benefits, student earned income for those of you under, under 22 who can keep your SSI and get your work experience. That's a free webinar and it's on November 10th. And again, go to aphconnectcenter.org to register. Uh, the one last thing I want to say out there is uh, this is a little friendly uh, competition between Katie and I with our, our social media. Uh, if you go to Facebook, I know a lot of you are on Facebook. You've got Vision Aware and you've got Career Connect and you've got Family Connect. We all have likes. I have the fewest likes with Career Connect. I want you all to go up to Career Connect and like Career Connect because Vision has over 5,000 likes. We have 860 <laughs> likes. So my goal is to get to 5,000 likes to be competitive with Vision Aware. Um, I want to thank you, ACB, uh, Washington Council of the Blind, and everyone listening uh, from wherever you're at comfortably. Thank you, uh, Cindy, Sheila, Julie. I don't know. Do we or George? Do we have questions from from the audience? Richard and Chris, this is a fantastic uh, presentation. Uh, APHConnect.org. I'm going to take a moment and say that I commend AFB and APH for combining <clears throat> on these the uh, these resources and revitalizing uh, the whole thing. I, I remember when uh, you know the Connect uh, concept was first. I think it was back in in the 90s, and it you guys was. have just done an incredible job. I was out on the website about a month ago taking a look at it and there's just so much good stuff there and uh karen schroeder is a friend and an excellent presenter i would encourage anybody to attend that social security and work seminar you'll learn a lot um, and we've got just a few minutes for questions sheila uh, uh -huh. any judy, hands? judy brown you may go ahead oh yes hi thank you uh 
I'm relatively new to the blind community since I only lost my vision about four years ago, but I am a full-time uh, legally blind working nurse. But the one thing I struggle with is all of these acronyms within the blind community that don't get uh, explained. One of them is APH. I have no idea what that stands for. Oh, uh, and yes, the APH is the American Printing House for the Blind, and APH itself has been around since the 1850s when we started out publishing books for blind children in the K-12 through system, uh, and we are headquartered in Louisville, Kentucky. Thank you. Okay, Haley, Eric, you may unmute. Haley, hi Haley. Haley, you can unmute. Haley, I believe you're unmuted. Okay, sorry, had to find that link. I still stink at this. Um, I was just wondering, how do you find um, the people in various careers to interview? And I'm really glad that Career Connect is back. I, I heard about it when I was about 16, 17, loved the program. And then when I couldn't find it, when I was really searching for work that I could do and who to talk to about it, um, I couldn't find it. So I'm really, really glad to see Career Connect up and running strong. Yeah, so Haley, and thank you for that good question. And, and, and it's the, the, the sites of uh, Career Connect, Family Connect, and Vision Aware, and the Connect Center, we're not silos. We work as a team. So if you call the INR line, if you um, contact us through any of our sites, we're, we work together as a team to address those questions. And we all collectively know a ton of people. Um, I've been in the field of rehabilitation as a counselor for 10 years, and I worked as a transition specialist for the last 10 years. So I know a lot of folks. Pris knows a lot of folks. Katie knows a lot of folks. Alan and Sharon probably know more than all of us with their INR line experience. And um, Pris, your peer advisors, they're, they're, they have various forms of employment and, and we pull from their expertise as well. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You're right. So we have a lot of places to pull from and we've got some great people who can certainly um, advise and, and give their stories. So... Yeah, in our Career Connect Advisory Committee, most of them are blind themselves and they're working professionals. So collectively, Haley and everyone out there, we, we, we know it. We got it. We know where to find them. And that's all your hands right now. Um, the one last thing I did completely forget to mention Family Connect, and, and I didn't want to ignore it, but it, it is a website, uh, familyconnect.org, and it's up there, and it's a resource for families, families with blind children, where you can learn about uh, webinars that we do involving the family. One of the ones we did last year that was really successful is Blind Kids Just Want to Have Fun. It was addressing the summer camp experience during the pandemic and how summer camps were, were going to pivot and serve kids this summer. We're going to do a repeat to that uh, in a few months to address what camp going to look like for flying kids next summer as you it, recreation and leisure is so important but so is health and safety and we're also addressing uh, transition issues with family connect um, there's blogs up there from parent perspectives from teachers perspectives on how to involve your child at play with sighted children uh, children with multiple disabilities so family connect is another resource um, and in fact I have it on good word that um, we are going to be opening up a position for digital content manager for Family Connect. So uh, go to APH.org, look under our career tab very shortly. And if you think you've got the um, ability to work with us, uh, you know, send us a note and we'll, we'll see what we can do. Well, uh, thank you both. Why don't you give that phone number one more time? Yeah. Sure. Um, go ahead. Got it. 
Oh, yeah, it's 1-800-232. That's 1-800-232-5463. I'm going to say, call the number on your screen. I won't do that. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like that infomercial. Yeah, it's 1-800-232. I've had too much coffee. 5463. Um, We do the voicemail does uh, pick up on the weekends or when Alan and Sharon are in meetings. Uh, Often they forward the voicemails to Pris, Katie and I and to our team, uh, our director. Alaya Landa Vallard is a teacher in practice at TVI with her PhD, and she's she's a great leader, and she knows a lot of folks, and she's also um, you know addressing the deafblind uh, issues too that we want to deal with. So you know, we have just collectively a, a great wealth of expertise, and, and we invite you to APH Career Connect, APH Connect Center, and, and just engage with us. We really want to hear from you. And that website again is APHConnectCenter.org. Thank you, Sheila. Oh, Chris, yeah. Sure. Mm -hmm. Um, All right. Well, thank you to APH and ACB for hosting us. And we're going to continue to talk about employment and education and everything that goes with that a little bit later this morning. Uh, Right now, um, I think I'd like to have a couple of door prizes. Okay, let's find those. This is the hardest part of my job is doing these door prizes, I got to tell you. All right, here we go. All right, our next one, $25 Amazon gift card donated by United Blind of Whatcom County. And I get to draw. Quit peeking, Reg. Yvonne... Yvonne Thomas Miller, Bellingham, Washington. All right. Would you like another one? Yes, please. Okay. All right, Reggie. Thank you. I will do the next door prize for $25 Red Lobster gift card. Go ahead, Sally. Okay. Let's see who this may be. Oh my, it's a Anissa Prota from Seattle, Washington. Great, great Yay. prize, Yay. Okay. Okay. And uh, congratulations to Anissa and Yvonne. Uh, <clears throat> it's amazing how we can be in multiple places at the same time through the, through the <laughs> magic of radio. <laughs> and now I've got to see if I can find uh, Lisa... Lisa George again here. Uh, she is our lady of many hats. Uh, she's serving as Washington Council of the Blind Treasurer right now. And we want to speak to all of you and um, who are responsible for fundraising in your local chapters, which should be all of us as members. And Lisa's going to tell us how to put the fun back in fundraising. Thank you, Reg. (laughs) And I do have to say, I forgot when I was doing that last door prize drawing, um, that was donated by Snohomish County Council of the Blind. So thank you to SCCB. Um, (laughs) You're right. When you, when we're recording that, it's a totally different time. And now we're, now I've got to shift and I've got to be a presenter. I've got to put the fun in fundraising. And I hope that everyone who's listening will find some things that they're doing and say, I do, I'm doing that right. Um, 
Kim, well, let's have you uh, mute, please. For now, thank you. Uh, but <laughs> but I hope that you will learn something too. And that's what I'm trying to convey. Like Reg says, I'm the treasurer. I'm also in my own chapter, I'm the secretary in charge of fundraising too. Uh, and I'm now the chair of the fundraising committee, which is newly formed this year, uh, so that we can focus on some fundraising because we don't have the services of a commercial fundraiser that we have had in the past for WCB. So first off, I wanna say, if you are, uh, now I'm, everything I'm gonna talk about today is going to be specifically focused for Washington state. So if you're, if you're uh, from another state, please check into your own secretary of state and find out what the rules are for fundraising where you live. But for Washington state, the Secretary of State requires that any group who wants to fundraise or solicit funds in the state can, should be registered as a nonprofit corporation. Now, WCB and all of the local affiliates, the local chapters and the statewide affiliates, you're a business. Even though you're charitable, even though you're a member organization, you're still defined as a business. You're a nonprofit. So a nonprofit is different than a charity because you can be one without being the other. But for our purposes, for Washington Council of the Blind and for all of the affiliates, we are both membership organizations, nonprofits, and we can be charities. So the Secretary of State uh, in Washington allows you to register so that anyone in the state, anyone in the public can check you out and know that you're uh, a legitimate charitable organization. If, if you were a donor and you wanted to give money, you want to make sure that it's going to the right place and, and that the people uh, who you're going to give your $50 to or $100 to, they're doing things, the, the right things to do with that money. They're, uh, they're active in their community. They're promoting uh, ideals and opportunities, things like that. So the Secretary of State allows you to define, you register as a nonprofit and you say, this is our name. This is our federal tax ID. This is our uh, where, where we're operating out of. And maybe it's the president's address. Uh, and who, here are the names of people who are governing our group, uh, the president, the vice president, treasurer, all of that stuff. It's laid out so that it's very transparent and very visible to anybody who would choose to find out, is that a legitimate nonprofit? So uh, that's what a, a nonprofit registration does. Uh, in addition, if you are operating in Washington State and you're a nonprofit, you could also register as a charity. Now, some some organizations are required to register. WCB is actually required to register because in the past we had the services of a, a, fund, a commercial fundraiser. But the local chapters probably raise under $50,000 a year, probably don't have any paid employees. They're not religious organizations. And the, the, that therefore they can be an optional registered charity, but that gives another level of 
transparency to people in the in the community across the state to check out that your group is a good good place to give their money to be charitable. So uh, that's kind of the uh, I'm I, I'm going to get to the fun. I'm going that's like the dessert. I'm going through some of the rules. That's the vegetables. You got to get through the vegetables to get to the dessert. <laughs> so I hope that hope that this is coming across right. So the uh, nonprofits that we have in the state, there's there's many of them, uh, and they the the Secretary of State defines the rules. And I'm a treasurer, I'm a rule follower, and so I always want to make sure that everyone understands what the rules are. So the um, oh the rules. <laughs> Um, basically, if you're going to solicit contributions from the public, uh, you need to be, again, be registered. And then um, you're going to report on those things. You're going to be keep that registration up. So that's that's the, the rules and the, the rule follower in me that we find all that. But for your chapter, for your group, you know who supports you you know what what's in your community and what opportunities there might be or ideas so let's go over some of the things that i found that work in my chapter and this is and you know where i get some of my ideas in our uh, award-winning newsline publication there is an around the state section and every chapter usually gives an update every quarter and tells you what's going on in their chapter. And I have gotten ideas from other chapters because what works in Bellingham could work in Yakima too. So we've done uh, various things for fundraising. We've certainly done 50-50 drawings. We've uh, maybe made some crafts and sold them at a local um, craft show. We've... uh, I don't think we've sold candy yet, but we we were thinking about that. But one thing we did was uh, found Papa Murphy's in our area will allow organizations. And actually, you don't have to be a 501c3, which is an IRS designation that says any donations are tax deductible. You just have to be a group who is uh, working in the community and has a a purpose that they approve. So maybe there was uh, sports teams, booster clubs. So Yakima Valley Council of the Blind approached Papa Murphy's and said, we would like to use, we would like to um, procure some peel a deal cards for Papa Murphy's. They provided, we paid $1 a card and we were able to sell it for $5 a card. So that, that's a pretty good return on a fundraiser. Uh, and it's fairly, it, it doesn't go bad. It's not like candy where uh, you kind of have to get it in and get it out. You don't want to sell uh, stale candy. But we found that that's been a really good fundraiser for us. So I am now going to ask Kim Moberg to share some of the things that her chapter has done to put to uh, put the fun and fundraising in uh, Kittitas, Kitsap County. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Kim. Okay. <clears throat> so South Kitsap Council of the Blind is where I am the president. 
And we, um, we were really trying to think of some kind of fundraiser that didn't require a lot of work, but would bring us in a little bit of money through the year. So I had been working at a local school and knew, knew that they did this program called Shop with Script. And what it is, is it's you go through this company and they you um, buy gift cards. And like if you buy a $25 gift card, from that $25, your chapter gets like 2.5% every, and they have like 600 gift cards and every different company that has a gift card there has a different um, percentage that you get back. So you have to go on their website, which is shopwithscript.org, and you have to fill out their application. I And you can ask questions and stuff. So I went ahead, before I did anything, I went and I wrote them a note, and I explained that we were not a 5013C, and I was curious if this would be something we could participate in. And they came back and they said, absolutely. So I went through the process of filling out their application and setting up so that they could directly withdraw funds from our account. Because the way that you get your money back is, so you place orders. So Lisa orders, Cindy orders, Julie orders. And I place that order all in one. And then as you pay me back, I get the money because they'll only take the difference. They don't take, I mean, so, <clears throat> so like if Lisa's card was, you know, she bought $50 worth and minus the percentage, it was, you know, $48. So $2 would stay when Lisa paid us back. They would only take the, the 48, not the full 50. And so, at first, I was kind of hesitant about watching this process work, but every year we make about three to four hundred dollars doing this, and we um, we put in. You can do it as often as you want, but the one thing you need to make sure is um, the cost. The only cost involved is the eight seventy five to get the cards emailed back to you. So I I always make sure when we place an order, it's a pretty good size order that we do. And they have all kinds. I mean, you can just place orders when you want. But if you're really watching and you're really into it, um, you can do things like they'll have, they'll, they'll say, you know, you get a bonus of up to 18% on each of your cards if you order on this day. But they don't give you hardly any notice. Or they'll, they'll do things like, we're running a special for Christmas or back to school or these companies right now will offer this much if you order today. So they have all kinds of ways within your within the program to um, get more money on the return. Um, and they send it all the time in your email so you, you know about it. But you you don't have to wait for any of their specials. Like I'm getting ready to do an order. 
at the beginning of November because we want the cards back for Christmas to use as Christmas gifts. And usually that order is, you know, by the time my members are done, that's the order is about a thousand dollars. And, you know, I we get around, you know, a hundred or so dollars. It just depends on what cards and how much the percentage was what we get back. But like I said, we, we get about three or four hundred dollars a year on that. So, that is great. I, I had never heard about that program before before you brought it up, Kim. So now let's talk a little bit about some of the things that WCB as a state organization who does have a 501c3 status can offer to our local affiliates whether or not they have a 501c3. So the big thing that we pushed this year, we did it we did it last year and we had some participation. We did it this year. We had more participation and we had a better event. I, I forgot to say, this is the fun part. I put my fun fundraising uh, <laughs> antenna yeah. on. I don't have a hat, but I have a headband and it's got the little sun uh, smiley face with the with the um, sunglasses and oh. they look like a sun. So anyway, I'm trying, I'm trying to be fun. This is my fun, fun side. So Give Big is something that is uh, unique. Well, not unique to, to Washington. It's our Washington's version of something that I know happens in other states across the country. But it's a focused online giving uh, for, all, for any nonprofit or charity, 501c3, that registers. So they, it's, it was first started in Seattle and it's gotten bigger and bigger. And now we even know about it in Yakima on the other side. So we we decided to <clears throat> encourage trying to get all of our members to ask their friends, family, acquaintances um, to tell, tell them about WCB, tell them about the local chapter, and try to solicit donations to get them to, to give us money to help us in all of our programs and what we do. And it's, it's when you're passionate about the, the thing that you're doing, it's, um, sorry about that, it, it shows. And you can talk to people and they will respond to you. And the personal connections, that's what makes it really great. So this year when we did Give Big, uh, we had chapters sign up and they were able to generate their own contributions that they got 50 of it, 50% back and, and WCB has 50. And Kim actually, her chapter <laughs> generated the most off of the single page that they had. And Kim, how did you do that? Oh, so, you know, I go to my family and I have a brother and a sister who are very competitive. And I say to them, so why don't you donate to Give Big Washington and it will benefit my chapter. And I knew these two would try to see who could donate the most. So my sister thought she was being pretty smart and donated $200 and thought, um, nobody else would do any more than that. My brother turned around and donated $500. So targeting your audience who you ask to donate, I think, is a really important. See how, you know, if you know, you know, they'll, they'll give if I talk to them, go to them. 
That's right. In my chapter, Yakima, we were second, but we had a chapter page and then we had individual pages. And it's that personal story that, that I can say, this is, this is why this organization is important to me. And, and when I share it with people who know me, they say, yeah, that is a really good organization. And, and little things add up to big things. So even if it was only a $10 donation, if I got 10 people, that's a hundred bucks. So it all adds up. Yep. So um, that's why I, uh, I I really like Give Big. And so we're going to do that again next year. So that's going to happen in May next year. But what we're also, and anyone who was uh, listening to the board meeting Thursday night, I asked the board, should we be possibly utilizing that platform for other online fundraising? And they said that there, there's always a balance. Don't oversaturate. But yes, we still do need to participate and get some funds. So we will probably be doing something with Giving Tuesday, which happens this year. It's the Tuesday after Thanksgiving. I want to encourage anyone who is at all interested in that, you need to contact me because we're going to need to really jump on that if we want to get it going for this year. So as chair of the fundraising committee, if you would like to be involved in my committee, I encourage you. (laughs) So far, there's just the three of us because we did actually lose one of our members, Gloria Riley from Whatcom County, who was great. She did a page herself and generated some funds for her chapter in Whatcom County. And so there was a lot of success this year with Give Big. So the last thing I wanted to say was... uh, Local chapter fundraising is important. We know that. You've got to have funds. But you are also, every local chapter and statewide affiliate is part of Washington Council of the Blind. And it's important that we fundraise at that level, too. So last night, Washington Council of the Blind had a live auction fundraiser. Thank you to everyone who participated in that, who donated, who bid, who won. Um, I need to get payment from you. But anyway... Uh, we were about a thousand dollars less than last year, but still, it's uh, four thousand four hundred and seventy-five dollars that we raised last night at the fundraising auction. And I wanted to thank everybody. Um, so, when you're fundraising, it's ask, thank, report, and repeat. So get the get the donations. Ask people about them. Thank them, and then tell them later what did what. Did you a what were you able to do with the money that you raised? Um, provide this service, do this activity, whatever it is, and then repeat. That's the secret. So let's see if there's anyone who's got questions, and uh, we'll try to answer them. Great job, Lisa. I have a, a question for Kim because your chapter really did do an incredible job this year, and I also wanted to mention that it was really. Lisa's idea, um, I commend her for, for setting up Give Big, uh, that platform in the first place. And you have to have a good platform that, that's actually ran properly. And I think the people in, in charge of that have done a really good job, ethical job of getting the money out to all the organizations that are um, under that umbrella. But the, the, the innovation was of we didn't have to give all that money back to the local chapters, but we decided 
you know, she she came up with the idea of incentivizing it so that everybody benefited and having us give half the, the money that we make back to local chapters so they could do good and reach out to, to uh, people who are visually impaired in the local communities as well as to help our state organization. And I think that that has been uh, very successful. But yeah, Kim, I also am wondering how you do it. Like how many members do you have in, in your chapters and do you have them just post when you get these cards? That's kind of scary ordering, spending that much money um and and not knowing you know if you're going to get it back or whatever well first off reg i knew about the program already and a little bit about how it worked because the school mm -hmm. i worked at that's how the school raises their money and so i had already talked a little bit off and on to the parent volunteers about it because i was curious about it for a long time if if it was something that my chapter could do. So then I called the, the um, 1-800 number that they have and I chatted with them and checked into it. And I decided, well, I, I took it to my members, which we have about 26 members in our chapter. And oh I, my. Okay. And I proposed, I proposed um, the idea and I said, what do you think? And we all decided that I would go ahead and I would set it up and um, and we would try it once. And we did. And everybody was impressed with how easy. Just call Kim and give her your order and she'll put it in. You know, I tell them, I will call them on a certain date or you need to call me by a certain date. We'll place and give me your order. Then I will place the order and we get the stuff back in within a week. And it comes by UPS or it comes by um, FedEx, whichever you choose. And then you have the choice of, so when I place the order, I have the choice of, actually when they I back up, I have to decide when I first set, it, set the account up that they would either withdraw directly from our chapter checking account or they and now they I think that's the only way I could do it at that time but now you can um, use a debit card and do it that way okay well uh, thank also, you Kim yeah. we've got about five minutes for for right. uh, and questions and fundraising ideas here uh, so uh, Sheila, what, what do we no, have for no, hands? No, Reginald, oh. I can do this. <laughs> okay. Thank you. So I know Bob uh, has a question, but Julie Brandon also might have a question. So I want to go to Julie first, and then we'll get Bob Cavanaugh uh, to get his question. Julie? Yes, hi. Can you hear me? Yes. Great presentation. I have a couple real quick questions for Kim. Kim, I'm guessing, do you not order your cards until you have commitments from chapter members to sell them? That's my one question. And number two, Kim, I wonder if you'd be willing to send the information for what you're doing to both the president's list and treasurer's list. Thank you. I can send it to both the president's and treasurer's list. Mm -hmm. Not a problem. The other thing, um, what was your first question? Uh, do you have a commitment from people about what they're going to oh. sell and how much before you order the cards? So what we do is I go to each of my individual people. I mean, and like Carol Brame, she'll go and ask different friends, you know, do you want to order? And they, once they've made their commitment, 
you know, so Carol told me, you know, she says, I need, I need five cards from Red of Red Robin. I need right, right. four um, from Supercut, mm-hmm. and I need two from uh, Walmart. And so right. I'll put that in as Carol's order, and I'll have a specific number for Carol. And then I, and then Pat Whitlow, she orders, mm-hmm. she always orders for all her grandkids, mm-hmm. and. You know, and then like me, I ask friends and I place those on my order. When I get all those orders in, then I submit it as one big order with some orders underneath it. Right. So that lessens so that, the risk that Reg was asking about. He said, what, isn't that risky to be ordering? And I'm just saying not really, because you know what the commitment is before you order. That's right. right. Yep. Got it. Thank you very much. Thanks. Lovely presentation. All right. Bob, what's your question? Okay. Um, so. I think Kim, you answered kind of the question. So, so basically, the way it works is the chapter orders the gift cards, and then once you spend them, right, uh, and then you give them to others to, and they spend them, right? Yep. Okay. They're just like regular, you know, they're exactly like the card, the subway card. Maybe you go buy a sub a, a gift card at Subway. It's the cool. same thing, except that. On this card, when you buy it, your chapter or organization is going to get a percentage of that sale back in their pocket. Okay, cool. The other thing I will say is that uh, I was involved in the candy sales for a while, and that is a lot of work. So I, I do that. That peel a deal from Papa Murphy's. That sounds like something we're going to have to look into. That's and that that'll be local, local to your area, and you just. Uh, find out where it is in your which, which of the stores is like the main store for for your city, and then they'll uh, you find out who to to send the letter to, and that's how we got it. it okay. And we sell well. the cards for about five dollars. That how much are those? What's the value $1. of those cards? I uh, well, no, I mean oh, um, they used all the there's, coupons. There's eight coupons, and I I forget how much it is, but it's definitely more than five dollars. Well, yeah, so, I thought it was fifty or sixty dollars, so it is worth it, especially uh, if that's the only uh, way that I'm they gonna, can find some of those coupons. I don't know if fifty or sixty, but definitely twenty-five, Reg. <laughs> okay, we have one more question oh. from Cassie. Thank you, Bob, for yours, and uh, we'll we'll ask Cassie what her question is. More than twenty-five. Hi. Am I talking? Yes, yes, you are. Um, hi, my name is Cassie, and um, I actually don't have a question, but I have a, a comment on the 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 topic that you guys are talking about right now. Um, I have ordered the cards from Kim because um, I wanted to help support the uh, the local chapter, and I was like, well, how do I do that? I normally get these subway cards, and so Kim was like, well, this is how we do it, and you know, so as a as as a member. Um, side of it, I was like, okay, I I gave her the money for the car. No, she ordered the cards. I gave her the money for the cards. Or maybe it's the other way around. Um, and then she gave me the the two cards that I had ordered. I went to the subway store to go ahead and get my normal subway stuff. They, you just swipe the card, and that was it. I didn't have to do anything special. So it was from start to finish, from uh. Uh, a member side it was very seamless yeah okay thanks well we we've talked about in the fundraising committee we've talked about other 
food-related opportunities. Uh, Panera has a program that we could probably get in. There's, there's lots of ideas out there. And again, please, if you have any interest in fundraising, talk to me and be on my committee. <laughs> That's what I got to say. Reg, I think we have to wrap it up because I know you've got a couple more uh, door prizes, right? And then we're going to go into the panel with the big three. And I know everyone's waiting for that. And actually, Deb, uh, why don't you give us one door prize now and then one before uh, we for, uh, you go into uh, guide dog users of Washington State. I don't believe she's here. I believe she left. Hmm. Do we have a host right now? Um, I, I am Sheila and I am the host. Okay. Uh, do, but, you, do you have access to the? Uh, I'm here. I'm here. I'm here. There she is. <laughs> I'm sorry. You know, I'm not sitting at this PC all the time, and so when you do, you, you spring these door prizes on me, which is just totally fine. But I'm not here. Hold on. Okay. Uh, let's get you a door prize. All right. Twenty-five dollar gift gift card from Amazon, donated by United Blind of Walla Walla. Okay, Frank. Oh God. And the winner is Denise Colley from Lacey. Yay! Yay. Oh my goodness. That'll be portable to Texas. Yes. (laughs) All right. And our next one is going to be in right about an hour. Okay, got it. Everybody stay tuned for that. Right now, I am pleased and honored to present um, our state agencies who. work with us and for us and i am very proud to be involved uh, on some level with all three of them we have washington state school for the blind and the washington talking book and braille library with danielle miller Uh, and we have uh, department of services for the blind and it's at satya today Uh, so i will uh, um let you guys take over. You want us to just go, go in? I'm order? promoting right. Michael to yes. the panel. He wasn't on the panel for you. So, okay, Michael. Okay, so we have two people there. That's why I was confused. Yep. Hello, Michael. And I can go if you like, Reg. That would be great, Scott. All right. Sounds good. Well, good morning, Washington Council of the Blind. Uh, Thank you for having me. My name is Scott McCollum, and I have had the honor of serving as the superintendent of the Washington State School for the Blind since 2016 BC. That now means before COVID to me. Um, The convention had an engaging lineup of speakers yesterday, and I really appreciated hearing from my friends, uh, from DSB, learning from Ari Nieman, getting the update from WCB President Julie Bannon, and learning the life story of Dr. Kirk Adams. I've had the opportunity to get to know Kirk over the a bit over the past five years, but I really enjoyed learning the details of his remarkable life journey. I was also relieved to hear him recognize that although WSSB may not have been his family's school of choice when he was young, uh, that WSSB has evolved and is currently recognized as one of the top schools for the blind in the country. 
Uh, I certainly miss the opportunity to connect with all of you in person and the exciting energy of in-person events. I am, however, once again, really enjoying this virtual convention. Uh, much like last year, the audio for me anyway has been crystal clear. Finding a seat this morning was really, really easy. And the coffee at the convention is just how I like it. So thank you. Well done, WCB, President Bannon, Lisa George, and everyone else who uh, worked so hard to put on this year's virtual convention. Uh, hopefully, it was a little easier this year compared to last. I'd like to take a moment to recognize the fantastic WSSB WCB connection uh, on our board of trustees and ex officio board uh, and encourage you to consider joining our board if you live in any one of the areas with an open seat. The board of trustees uh, represents the 10 congressional districts of Washington. First, I'd like to say thank you and offer my heartfelt appreciation to Reg George, uh, the gentleman who introduced me here. Reg was appointed by the governor, uh, Governor Inslee, that is, and confirmed by the Senate to represent Congressional District 4. Thank you, Reg. I'd also like to thank and recognize Jolene Ferguson. Jolene continues to be a wonderful representative of Washington Council of the Blind, serving at, on the ex officio board at WSSB, filling a very special seat that is permanently maintained by a council member. Yesterday, President Bannon spoke about the importance of getting involved with WCB and that joining one of the many awesome and amazing committees was a great way to get involved, provide and practice leadership, and impact change and make a positive difference. I agree wholeheartedly with President Bannon and would like to encourage you to also consider getting involved with the Washington State School for the Blind. Our Board of Trustees has several open seats available. The Board of Trustees typically meets five times a year and the meetings are usually about two hours long. We used to always meet at the school, um, but we now meet virtually and I expect that in the future we will always have a remote option. As Board of Trustees members, there are often opportunities to get involved on a totally different level if you so choose. The Board of Trustees advises me and the leadership team on all matters relating to the school and the agency. In thinking about the role of the board and whose voices need to be represented and heard, I think of you. Currently, the Washington State School for the Blind Board of Trustees has three seats open. That's for Congressional District 1, Congressional District 9, and Congressional District 10. Congressional District 1 is made up mostly of Whatcom, Skagit, and Snohomish counties, and about one-third of King County. If you live in cities like Everett, Mount Vernon, Sammamish, and Snohomish, please, please, please consider applying for this seat on our board. Congressional District 9 is a narrow strip of the Puget Sound region from Tacoma to Bellevue. If you live in Federal Way, Kent, Renton, SeaTac, Seattle, any cities in those areas, please consider applying for this seat on our board. And finally, Congressional District 10 is also open. Congressional District 10 is made up of portions of Thurston, Pierce, and Mason counties, generally centering around Olympia. So if you live in cities such as Tumwater, Lacey, Fife, Puyallup, Tenino, and University Place, or University Place, I should say, please consider applying to be a member of the WSSB Board of Trustees. Uh, 
If you live in any of the areas mentioned and are interested, please don't hesitate to reach out to me at the school. Um, to be considered for a board seat, you will be required to complete an application that is available on the Governor's Board and Commission's website. Uh, I'll help you get there if you need it. Uh, a full term on the board is five years. It sounds like a big commitment. It is somewhat. Um, board members are eligible to complete two terms consecutively. Seems most of our board members tend to do that. We love having that longevity on our board. Again, even if you're just curious and you want to talk about what it means to be on the board or your interest in how to apply, please don't hesitate to reach out to me at WSSB. I will assist you in any way I can. If you're willing to be involved, but maybe you don't want to commit to a full board seat, um, we're also looking for a WCB member to join our Healthy Schools Committee. The committee is made up of parents, students, administrators, food service representatives, uh, one of our nurses, and our physical education department. Really, it's Jen Butcher, our awesome PE teacher and former Paralympian. The Healthy Schools Committee helps evaluate and guide our efforts related to student nutrition and physical activity. If this sounds like something you may be interested in, please connect with me. And I'm sure that both Reg or Jolene uh, can assist you in connecting with me if you like. Um, they both know how to reach me and can reach me at any time. Another way to get involved with WSSB is to check out our new website. Uh, we just recently, like within the last year, overhauled our entire website and we'll be procuring an accessibility audit to be completed by the end of the school year. If you have any feedback uh, about our website, we'd really like to hear from you as always. And um, again, we want to hear your user experience. So please reach out to us. I suppose that what you are really wondering about in this report is how's the school year going? Uh, it's going pretty well. Actually, we ended last school year uh, with all students who wanted to, which is uh, an overwhelming majority of students uh, attending in person. We had an awesome and unique outdoor graduation ceremony uh, around the track for our eight graduates who walked in person. We actually had nine graduates, but one of them uh, decided to stay remote. It was very different, but it was also beautiful. Uh, we had limited attendance just due to COVID restrictions, um, but it was a really cool way to celebrate our new graduates. As soon as the school year ended, we invited all students back for two more weeks of school. And believe it or not, most students took us up on that offer. You know, it's probably an unusual year where you say, just as soon as the school year ends, we're going to give you two more weeks of school. And they all want to go, but most of them did. Um, and we actually had school through the weekend that, that time, which was different for us. This school year, we've uh, seen a little bump in our student numbers on campus. That might be due to the fact that we're able to, to meet in person. It might be due to the fact that students uh, missed some instruction last year and wanted a more intensive service delivery model that we can provide at the school. Uh, whatever it is, we love having so many new students this year. Um, we also have a foreign exchange student from Mongolia this year, which we hadn't had last year, which is it's great to bring back uh, that difference in culture um, for all of our students and that student. Uh, this year, we've been 100% in person all year long. We still have to do some things differently, but we learned a lot from our experience last year, probably like our conference planners this year. We have, to some degree, focused a lot of our attention on improving outdoor spaces um, at WSSB. And so this is a somewhat daunting task, as we already have this amazingly beautiful campus in Vancouver. 
We're adding a, a showdown table. If, if any of you are familiar with showdown, we're adding a new showdown table to the outdoor covered space. Um, hopefully that provides an opportunity for our students to engage with one another and compete uh, outside in a safe way. Thanks to some very recent student advice, we're improving our swing area by updating the swings and making that area accessible to students in a wheelchair. Um, so we're hoping to have that ready by our track meet in the, in the spring. Uh, connected to another new student's interest in disc golf, we added a remote-controlled beeping disc golf camp, uh, basket on campus. That's kind of cool and different. Um, thanks to Kirk Adams, uh, who Dr. Kirk Adams, I should say, who spoke yesterday, we formed a partnership with Google, and that project is to uh, create a new accessible way to engage with our track on campus. And so we're looking forward to exploring that technology with Google. Uh, we've also uh, just heard from APH a little bit earlier today, and we've accepted an invitation from the American Printing House from the, for the Blind and Good Maps to electronically map our school and participate in a research project with APH and Good Maps to evaluate the usefulness of this new technology uh, for orientation mobility. Uh, we're also the first and only school for the blind to offer an AP level computer science principles class, and we've been doing that for a number of years. But what makes this year different is uh, we launched the plan to spread the love. Um, and what I mean by that is uh, through the Council of Schools and Services for the Blind, we formed a partnership with the Maryland School for the Blind to open up this opportunity in a remote way to students across the country. And we hope that this may be the start of a virtual school for the blind option that utilizes the amazing expertise that's contained within all of these great schools across the country um, and open up a full range of classes to students attending their neighborhood schools. And we're starting with computer science principles. And for those of you familiar with WSSB, we've long been doing remote classes in, in math, and we will continue to expand those options. Uh, finally, I want to give you an update on a project that's been in the works for a long time. We're continuing to move forward in the process of adding a new facility to our campus. This new facility will host a state-of-the-art purpose-built facility to house our transition program called LIFT. Uh, LIFT is an acronym that stands for Learning Independence for Today and Tomorrow. Uh, LIFT is a collaborative venture with our friends from DSB, and DSB remains to be a vital partner for so much of the work we do. And so the entire second floor of this new building uh, will become the new home of the Clark County Office for the Department of Services for the Blind. So um, as I mentioned last year, we've been working with a nationally renowned architect who also happens to be blind. His name's Chris Downey. Uh, he's been guiding a lot of the work on this project. That project is slightly behind schedule, but we're getting back into it. And the demolition of the old Alstein building um, is set to begin soon on campus within the next month. And the building completion date of the new building is looking like it's going to be around December of, of next year. So a year from now, basically, um, we hope to hopefully we'll be able to welcome the public um, to explore that space. And maybe many of you can can check it out. Uh, as you can tell, it has been a very busy year so far. Similar to last year, it's been challenging in some new and familiar ways. Uh, thanks for having me today. And if there's any questions at the end, I'd be happy to do my best to provide answers. Have a safe and happy Halloween. Thanks, everybody. I think maybe I'm next. Uh, this is Danielle. Can you hear me? 
Well, I'm so glad to be here with you all. This is my favorite time of the year, getting to be with you. Of course, I wish it was in person. I miss seeing you all so much, but things are going well at the Talking Book and Braille Library. Um, all of the staff are back at the library. We've started bringing in volunteers and we're open to the public. And this is a special year for us as we are celebrating our 90th anniversary. March 3rd, 1931 was when the Pratt-Smoot Act was enacted, which created the National Library Service. And we were one of the first 18 libraries to become a regional library of the National Library Service. So this year we've been celebrating that in different ways, having special events and special programs. And if you didn't see it earlier this year, we had a presentation on the history of NLS and Watabal, and that is on our website. And I would really encourage you to watch it. Tyler Kay, our patron registrar, did just a wonderful, wonderful job with the history of the service. So that is on our homepage if you want to see it. We also had the Washington State Poet Laureate, Rena Priest, and Ross Reynolds from KUOW did a presentation on the history of audio. And both of those were really great. They're also linked from our homepage. So check those out. They're really great presentations. A couple new people coming into our sphere this year. As many of you may know, we are, uh, Watauble is a program of the Washington State Library. We have a new state librarian. Sarah Jones is the new state librarian. She started almost seven months ago. Um, she replaced Cindy Aiden, the prior state librarian. And Sarah had previously been the director of the Marin County Free Library in California. Prior to that, she held several positions in Nevada, and she was also the Nevada State Librarian. In Nevada, their Talking Book and Braille Library is also part of the State Library, so she had some experience with Talking Book and Braille Libraries, which was good. I didn't have to um, start everything from scratch with her, and she is a big supporter of ours, and she's very excited to meet and work with all of you. We also have a new director of the National Library Service, Jason Broughton. He started about a month ago. Jason Broughton is the first African-American who served as the Vermont State Librarian, and he previously held positions in South Carolina and Georgia. He has his Master's of Library and Information Science from the University of South Carolina and an MS in Public Administration from the University of South Florida. So for NLS, uh, at the beginning of each federal fiscal year, they review their short and mid-range goals and make sure they align with the work they have in progress and also with the Library of Congress. And they just recently finished doing that. And there are a couple things that they have in mind to work on this year, of course, in collaboration with us, the regional libraries around the country. One of those things is to increase the number of active patrons served by two and a half percent. And one of the ways they wanna do that is to take advantage of the expanded list of certifying authorities. And that includes the fact that now for reading disabilities, there can be certifiers that include superintendents, teachers, librarians, um, and a number of other authorities can certify reading disabilities. It no longer has to be a medical doctor, which really expands the opportunity for those people to get certified for service. And we can also take electronic signatures on our applications now. So that helps remove some barriers to getting service. And that is in line with what we're doing at the library. We have a new outreach librarian, Riley Curran, 
She's really wonderful and has some outreach initiatives in the works. One of those is a big outreach push that we'll be doing to optometrists and ophthalmologists, and that will be getting out in the next couple weeks. And as always, one of our best outreach tools is you, our WCB community, as you meet people out there and you can let them know about the service and um, hopefully how great we are and uh, all the things we have to offer, you can help us get the word out. Another thing that NLS wants to do is work to continue to make BARD more scalable and user-friendly and more flexible. And they have a goal of having 25% of patrons using BARD by the end of the fiscal year. So we have some work to do in that area as well. Right now, we have 19% of Watauble patrons using BARD. So we've got a little ways to go on that. Um, BARD is a great service. I know a lot of you are users, but if you have ideas about how to get other folks signed up, that would be great. I would love to hear it. Um, BARD is a really convenient way to get your books. We love mailing you books. Um, so we're always happy to do that. But if you want to consider adding BARD to the way you use our service, that's a great way to go. Another thing that's going on with NLS and with us is books in languages other than English, which we're able to access through the Marrakesh Treaty. And the Marrakesh Treaty is a treaty to facilitate access to books in languages other than English. It's a cross-border treaty for books in accessible formats through international borders traded by authorized entities. So those are organizations who serve people with print disabilities. And most of these books are exchanged through the Accessible Books Consortium and their Global Books Service. And NLS has been acquiring many, many of those books and adding them to BARD, which is really exciting. As of early October, there were about 1,200 books obtained through the Marrakesh Treaty on BARD. And if you're familiar with looking at the prefixes of books, you know how a digital book is usually um, begins with DB or DBC and a Braille book begins BR. The Marrakesh or foreign language books are DBGs or BRGs. And so those you'll recognize as a book in another language or a book in English because we're getting books from Canada, for example. So there are more books in English as well. Um, so right now there are books in eight languages and they have been downloaded over 20,000 times, which is really exciting. And being able to access those books really increases the opportunity for people who use other languages to use the service and for us to acquire more books and grow the collection. Speaking of expanding the collection, I want to remind you that Watauble does have Bookshare memberships to offer to our patrons. We still have a few available to offer you. Um, Bookshare is a commercial service that has over a million now. They keep adding more and more titles, over a million titles available. We have 100 memberships that we pay for, and these are subscription memberships. And I have quite a few still available. If you're interested in getting a membership, you need to be a BARD user and you need to be a current patron and you'll wanna email me and get in touch about getting a membership. One of the advantages of using a Bookshare membership is there are materials that are in many ways um, more specific or more scientific, um, maybe more technology related. There are also foreign language materials. There's a broader collection than we currently have available. So if you're interested, 
and there are things that you're looking for that you can't find in our collection, they may be available on Bookshare. So something for you to consider. With our Braille department, we are offering our Braille transcription class again, and that's offered virtually right now. We're doing two sections, one on Wednesday afternoons and one on Saturdays. Our hope is not only to get that skill out there in the world, but also hopefully some people who graduate will become transcribers for us. We've been producing our Braille all through the pandemic since we're able to do it virtually, which is wonderful. We've got virtual transcribers, uh, remote transcribers, not virtual, they're real, um, and remote proofreading teams, which is great. Um, and we're also exploring in the future offering a tactile Braille class. And so hopefully that'll happen sometime in 2022. And our youth services program has been very busy, lots going on. Over the summer, we did our summer reading program. The theme was Tales and Tales. Um, so it was an animal themed program. We did a lot of virtual programming and had some great participation there. And we were able to use some American Rescue Plan Act funding or ARPA funding to purchase some sort of science technology um, engineering and math programming, some technology funds to expand our accessible gaming lab by purchasing some Nintendo Switches and an iPad and some accessible apps. And we also purchased Code Jumper, which is for uh, teaching computer programming. Um, and then we also purchased some items for the children's room that are good for CVI. We got a light table and a mirror tent. Um, some other items for the children's program, and we're excited to be expanding that. We also got a 3D printer, and we're going to be looking at ways to be able to incorporate that into our programming. So we're excited about being able to continue to grow that program. And Erin, our youth librarian, who some of you know, she is just amazing. We weren't able to offer our multi-sensory story time at the library in person, so she took that virtual and offered it online on Fridays. We would upload it to Facebook and our YouTube page. And we created a multi-sensory kit where we mailed out sensory items to youth patrons who wanted to participate. And so far there've been over 30 story times uploaded and we've got about 1500 views. So those have been very popular and we've sent out a number of kits for kids to participate in those story times. So that's been really great. And we're starting our preparations for the Braille Challenge, which will be in January, and we'll be doing that virtually again. It was very successful last year. The virtual option is really um, positive. I think even in the future, we'll at least have a virtual component. It allows it to be more inclusive. Last year, we had students from Oregon participate. Um, so that was nice. We'll do that again. We're looking forward to that, and planning is under the way, underway. Another thing that we're doing, we have memory kits that we're offering now, and those are also possible through ARPA funding. And the memory kits are designed to have um, items to spark memories and create conversations and provide engaging interactions between uh, patrons and community members who are at retirement homes and care facilities and activity directors or their caregivers. So we started out with five themes. Um, they are cars and cats and dogs and gardening and France. I think we've got a lot of other themes that we're working on. And they circulate in a canvas bag with tactile items and a digital talking book player and a cartridge with seven books on that theme. 
and then a document that has question prompts and sometimes some trivia and um, items to get them engaged. And those have been really popular. They're all checked out when we're working on new themes and getting those out in the community. So that's a lot of fun. And then duplication on demand, our circulation, um, that is completely the way we're doing circulation now with our audiobooks. That's a totally customized service where we're able to provide our readers with exactly what they want, exactly what you want, the books you want. And the amazing thing is that our entire collection of books is available at all times. So if there's something you want, we can put it on a cartridge for you if you want a whole series. If you want things in a certain order, we can accommodate that. And we started last year in October and we finished in December getting everybody converted to duplication on demand. And our system that does that is called Gutenberg. It allows us to duplicate 40 cartridges at a time. And we're doing about 250 cartridges a day, which gets us nearly 400,000, sometimes more a year. And in fact, last year in state fiscal year 21, our circulation was over 425,000, which is about the highest number of circulation, I think, since I've been at the library, which is going on 14 years. So people are, are really reading. Um, we also had a higher download number last year from BARD, which was over 145,000. So thank you for all your reading. I hope you're enjoying what you're reading and keep in communication with us so we can be sure we're getting you what you want. And then the Braille e-reader pilot that was in the works for quite a while, we are underway with that. We are loaning refreshable Braille displays. We're loaning the Zoom Max Braille e-reader. We have loaned out 102 e-readers at this point. We are right now the only network library in the country loaning the ZoomMax e-reader. Ohio is the other library that is in this pilot, but they have not started loaning those devices. Uh, it's a six-month pilot program. Participants in the pilot will participate in surveys and give feedback. It has some, you know, there are some trials with it. There's been a lot of work with the pilot. Um, we're getting some good feedback there. It's a learning curve for sure. And we're, it, we're really excited to be working with the people who have the devices to get their feedback um, and learn about the devices and see how they can be improved. And NLS has another device that is in pilot testing with other libraries, and that's a device made by Humanware. So at some point, they'll decide probably which device will be the e-reader that goes out to all of the libraries, but they're not at that stage yet. So um, there still is time to sign up and get an e-reader from us if that's something you're interested in. And our audiobook production department, um, during the pandemic, we weren't able to have our narrators and reviewers in. We did continue to get books up on BARD because our staff was able to do some final editing on books that had been in process and still keep things moving. But we wanted to get new books going and finish books that were waiting for correction. So we started a remote recording and editing program and we bought equipment that narrators and reviewers could use at home and trained them remotely and they got to work and it's been going really, really well. And they got a lot of books produced, a lot of books reviewed and got things moving again. So um, that's worked so well that we're going to keep doing it. So we'll have both in-house production and remote production. 
So that's a, a good, um, good move forward in our audio production department. And finally, just to let you know, we're continuing to invest in our building, um, which is a really important uh, space for us and our volunteers and for you as well. We'll be replacing all of our 1948 um, single pane plate glass windows and updating our security system and our garage doors and making it a really safe and energy efficient place for everybody to be and hopefully a, a good um, home base and some place that you can all be proud of. And I am just really glad to be here with you again and I'll look forward to taking any questions at the end. Thank you. Thanks, Danielle. And this is Michael McKillop representing the Department of Services for the Blind. I want to say good morning, WCB and membership. Really appreciate being here to, to talk about the agency and uh, my deep appreciation for WCB's emphasis, you know, consistent emphasis on employment and jobs and sharing the pathways to jobs and the challenges and the successes. Um, it was so lovely to hear Dr. Kirk Adams describe his journey to have the panel today describe their journey to hear, um, I believe it was Judy talk about uh, uh, careers in healthcare um, and Career Connect, which is such a, has a depth of information. If you haven't checked out Career Connect, I highly recommend it. It's an amazing collection of resources that um, we use, utilize and make use of uh, through the Department of Services for the Blind on behalf of our participants. So super exciting. Um, the story for the agency this year is, you know, change, pandemic, um, probably similar to what I was talking about last year. But hopefully we get to that BC that Scott had, uh, had uh, termed the before COVID, or at least, you know, we know it's going to be changed, but something closer to normal. And we are starting on that pathway. We've opened our doors to the offices uh, October 19th. And so our doors are open for the public to uh, to arrive. Psychologically, that hopefully sends the word out that we're open for business. Truthfully, we've been open for business the entire time. And we've been doing in-person services. Our orientation mobility has been, uh, specialists have been doing in-person services since September 2020. And our HE specialists and our counselors have been doing in-person um, in services since March. Uh, 2021. So we've been active. We've been busy. Our orientation training center has been providing um, some amazing learning and, and, and trainings uh, through remote, remote um, uh, um, means. And our youth services had pivoted those youth services and those youth activities into a remote and virtual arenas for um, connecting youth making sure that um, talking about um, self-advocacy, connecting the peers, and learning about careers, learning about the different types of jobs. Our life being remote hasn't been perfect. There's no question. So much of our services really require the in-person touch um, to be able to, to, to have the full gamut of benefits. I mean, when we look at youth services and our summer programs and and. Um, when students are away from the family for two weeks or six weeks and they're living on their own, they're um, doing their own chores, they're making their own money, they're doing their own groceries, and they're making their own um, getting to and from work. That's a, an amazing amount of, of development and independence and self-advocacy skills um, 
better uh, the, the opportunity there when they're in person. And we've been missing out on that somewhat. Certainly the virtual have been um, hitting all those skills, and, but um, it's, it's not as robust. And so we are looking to, very excited to get getting back to in-person services. Um, our orientation and training center is uh, next week is going to have our adult students back in the residential apartments. Uh, on a smaller scale, we'll, um, we'll do half uh, the, the um, apartment load the, at a time. So we'll have six students on campus and then a couple commuting students to get us reacquainted with what those in-person services are. But super excited. That's what the, that's what the center is about, is students getting together, meeting in person, getting those skills in person, but also developing those independent skills and practicing those skills uh, on their own, in their own way. So super excited about that. Um, youth services, I really appreciate. I know that uh, we're active in this WCB uh, convention. Um, I believe that there's a lunch for parents. Thank you, WCB, for, for uh, collaborating with our youth services staff. Um, I think that there's um, connection to sound. There are workshops around sound and learning about sound uh, and uh, and some peer connections. So WCB, thank you for connecting with us and helping us move uh, what we need to do, our mission. Um, I want to talk about some challenges in, in our agency. And the, the one program that COVID probably has hit most devastatingly is our business enterprise program. Our business enterprise program is through the Randolph Shepard Act where uh, blind vendors have priority for um, spaces in government buildings, county buildings, state buildings, federal buildings to operate food service operations. And in March 2020, overnight, that customer base just dried up because government workers were directed to work from home and have been working from home for 18 months. That means there are no customers in those government buildings to buy the, 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 the foodstuffs that the blind vendors uh, and the businesses offer. It's been challenging. Um, revenues are dropped 90% overnight. Um, that's been a loss of $6 million in revenue uh, for these vendors uh, over the past year. It's been a loss of uh, $600,000, $700,000 in state tax revenue, back folding it up back into the state. Uh, it's a huge challenge. And the reality is that with the hybrid models that have been talked about uh, post-COVID, post-pandemic, um, of having people work from home part-time, work in the office part-time, which is a great thing for the work-life balance for those individuals. It's a great thing for the businesses where they can shrink the footprint of their, of their building leases and, and save money on the, those operations. What it really does is it cuts that customer base for the business enterprise program vendor uh, ongoing. And that's a challenge. We've got an ask in for the state legislature. Um, hopefully it will make the governor's budget. Hopefully it will be in front of the state legislature and hopefully they will uh, vote to um, fund an overhaul of the business enterprise program facilities with the um, intent of increasing profitability for those vendors with the intent of increasing uh, customer base um, and, and 
uh, ability to have longer term operations or, or greater hours. We've done a study where if we make some changes, um, we're able to uh, increase the profitability from 7%, which is the current model, to closer to 20% for those vendors. And that is our goal. Um, we're crossing our fingers that it gets funded. We're crossing our fingers that uh, your state representative knows about what the BEP program is and how important that is and how important this funding will be to the existence of the program. So um, I'm hoping that uh, those conversations are had. That probably is the, the program that is most impacted negatively by, by the pandemic and harder to recover. Um, I'm excited about the recovery. I'm excited about getting back to normal. Um, the other thing that the pandemic has done has caused people, staff people, to make some decisions. Um, we have a huge wave of retirements this past year. We have about 10% of our staff is retiring. Um, last week, we had two retirement celebrations uh, for our staff, and it's really exciting for our staff to be moving on to other adventures. Um, but that leaves a lot of vacancies. That leaves a lot of churn. Um, our youth services program manager, Debbie Brown, is retiring at the end of November. And Deja Powell, who has been the program manager for the OTC, is moving into that role. And then we had a vacancy for the OTC program manager, and we filled that excitingly with Ron Jasmer, who I, I imagine many of you uh, in the community know Ron Jasmer. And super excited to have him on board um, come mid-November. Um, our business relations uh, program manager, Mark Adrian, retired earlier this year, and we got that filled and looking at new ways to be to be filling that. We have uh, a couple of recruitments out for VR counselors. So if you've got those VR uh, counselor skills and meet those qualifications, or if you know people who do, please invite them to, to be applying. Um, and we've got uh, a human resource liaison and uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion uh, coordinator position that is going to be um, recruited for. And we're excited about that. Um, so keep your ears open. If there's something that is a good fit for you, we'd really love to have you on the DSP team. A lot of, lot of churn. And Larry Watkinson actually talked about the opportunity in the state a lot of state employees are making these same decisions. And sometimes when you've got a big thing like the pandemic, people step back and they have time to kind of consider, is now the time to retire? And a lot of people are making those choices. Certainly there's also the vaccine mandate uh, requirement in mid-October that some staff uh, needed to make choices. There are a lot of vacancies in state government now. A lot of opportunity. There's also a big emphasis on diversity, equity, and inclusion among state government coming from the governor. Um, and DSB has, and I know that School for the Blind, has been really adamant that disability is part of that diversity, equity, inclusion, that that needs to be folded into those considerations and a lot of receptiveness to that uh, concept. So now is a good time. If you've got, if you've got the preparation, now's a great time to be uh, applying for those state jobs. There are a lot of openings, a lot of opportunity. Um, so excited for that. Um, I really appreciate WCB and the uh, active uh, involvement 
uh, members have had with the agency. Certainly, you know, we have a long history of WCB members on our state rehab council. Uh, we've got a number uh, of people active on the council that are WCB members. And our chair, Julie, you know, you're a phenomenal uh, chairperson for the state rehab council and really appreciate the work that you're, you're putting uh, towards the agency and the passion that you have for the agency. Um, and Linda Wilder, who's on the membership committee, getting all those uh, positions filled. We've had vacancies before. We have no vacancies currently on the State Rehab Council. Linda Wilder, good job. Just wanted to shout out. The agency uh, did a town hall in August and really appreciated the WCB members that were part of that conversation, helped us understand and you know we share the priorities of technology training and finding different ways for that, preparing for a post-pandemic um, job market, uh, how, how are people going to, what technologies do people need to have? How do people manage video conferencing, uh, video resumes? And we heard a little bit of that with the Career Connect uh, conversation as well. And that is a, a big emphasis and, and force of, of um, focus for the agency. Um, how do we change and meet the, the needs of, of the, um, the new economy? And I do appreciate uh, uh, also weekly our, our counselors are provided with all the activities that our participants might connect up with that WCB and ACB are, are doing. So I love the collaboration and I want that to continue. And uh, we're a better agency because of you, WCB, and all your passion and support. So um, that is my report. And if you've got questions, I'm open for that. Thank you so much. And this is Reg. I guess we're ready for questions. Sarah, you are unmuted. Oh, not again. Can you hear me now? Yes. That button, that virtual button, <laughs> it's going to get me every time. I got a question for Danielle Miller. Um, Danielle, um, I've suggested something to um, one of your folks there at the library because um, I have enough hearing. I can... Um, I basically, when I'm doing learning um, a piece of equipment, I learn best by following audio instructions. And I got the Braille thing, the Braille, the the trial thing, and I'm having trouble because everything's in Braille, and my I have short-term memory issues, and so. Um, I read the instructions and then I go back and I'm like, what the heck was I reading and which buttons are what? <laughs> so is there a possibility of getting an audio version of the instructions for the Braille display? Hi, Sarah. That's a, that's a great um, question. There are videos um, that give some instruction that we could direct you to. There's also a word version that you could use with a screen reader. Um, so those are two options, but we can um, think about that. Um, so that's a great suggestion that I will take under advisement. And if you want direction to either the, the word version that you can use with a screen reader or those videos. Um, Karen sent me the word version, but if somebody could send me an email of the videos. We can and do I that. hope they're mostly audio because I can't really see them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there there's audio with them. We'll we'll I'm deal kidding. with that next I'm week. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> okay. 
Thank you, Sarah. Thanks. Okay, and Sheila, I'd like to quickly recognize Julie Brannon. Yes, I, I, that's who was going next. So. Okay. <laughs> Can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Great. You know how Michael says he looks forward to the career stuff? I look forward to the big three. So thank you all. Phenomenal work. I'm going to focus on DSB because that's a huge passion of mine. Michael, I'm just tickled that OTC is opening up again. And I'm just wondering how that's worked with the wait list. And you, I'm sure you have tons of people ready to come back. Or have people been concerned about coming back? Really? I mean, certainly it is an unknown situation, returning um, uh, to in-person services. It, it, some people have trepidation about right. the pandemic and where we're at. We, we feel like maybe we're at the end, but then we felt like that five yeah, times no, before exactly. the past 18 months. Yeah. So it, it is a challenge, um, but the six people that are returning for the apartments have been taking classes, so they're not uh, new students. Gotcha. And it's, it will be finishing up a lot of their training right. while we continue to do some training remotely with other students on that wait list. Wow. So um, we continue to work with people in their homes uh, remotely, as well as um, we'll, we'll be adding that element of in-person services for a smaller group. And I share with you, I mean, the excitement of having students in person yes. at the center, that's what makes the center. That's yes. what makes it, is that in-person uh, interaction. Um, so we're super excited to be there. Thank you so much. I'm excited too. Haley? Hi, this is Haley Edick. Um, I was just wondering to whoever of you three would like to answer. What is the um, a number of um, visually impaired or blind um, people you have working in your areas, if you have any estimate. I think that one of the best things that young people can see is people doing the jobs they want to do who have the same visual acuities or discrepancies that they do. Thank you. This is Scott from the School for the Blind. I'll start, I guess. We have about 20% of our workforce is blind or low vision at the School for the Blind. And that, it seems to typically center on most of the employees are in the residential life. Where'd this sound go? It looks like you froze up, Scott, so I'll go really quick. This is Danielle. What? I'm hungry. There, there uh -oh. are. Can, this is Danielle. Can you hear me? Yes, ma'am. Yeah, okay. go ahead. Go yeah, so it seems like Scott froze. So we currently have 17 staff at Watauble, and two of those staff are blind. And this is Michael at Department of Services for the Blind. Um, it, it typically is 20 to 28 percent of our staff uh, are individuals with disabilities. Uh, that can include um, hearing disabilities as well. Um, um, that's helpful. Okay, thank you. Um, I believe we have a few minutes before our next presenters. Hey, Rich, this um, is Deb. Can I ask a question? Yes, um, sure. And then you can get your other door. And passed. I have one as well. <laughs> okay, good. Well, so, so Danielle on the e-readers, and I haven't heard too much positive about the Zoomax e-readers, so I'm wondering if the other one needs to win the race. But is it, you did mention that it's still possible to get them. Um, what are the requirements for 
for getting them? Thanks, Deb. Sure. Yeah, there's no requirement to get one. Um, just uh, call or email the library and um, ask for Herrick um, or just say you're interested in the Braille e-reader and we will send you one um, depending on how, you know, now you would still get entered in the pilot, which means you would have right. to participate in the surveys. Mm-hmm. Of course. Um, if it was a while from now, you may not you may be too late for the quote unquote pilot. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I'm hesitant to say this since I'm not, who knows how many people are, <laughs> but, um, I, you know, between us and the lamppost, I'm imagining humanware will win because yes. um, we, we have had some trouble and there, you know, it's a little, the battery is, is proving to be a little bit difficult. Um and there are a lot of um, buttons that do the same thing, which is making it a little bit complicated for people. Yeah. Um, I know there's been some feedback about it being a little bit noisy. It does have some good features. I know there was a lot of work that went into the development. Um, the instruction manual is pretty good. Judy Dixon put a lot of work into that. Mm-hmm. So there is a lot of information for people who are manual readers. Um, there, there is a lot of good support through that. Um, and it's good quality Braille. Thank you, Reg. Yes, I've heard that as well. So, um, and Herrick, um, Herrick Heitman, who's my librarian, who's kind of running the pilot, he's really um, doing his best and doing a good job trying to support people. And we got 350 of them. We, I think what I said is we've got 102 out. So yeah. we definitely have them available for people. Yeah, and I think it's really important that if people can actually make use of them, have good Braille skills and an application of them for library and other uses that they're qualified to do, I think it's really important to get that feedback in because absolutely, um, this is really a critical choice. Once it's made, it's going to be made for a long time, I assume. Exactly. And I think that just the fact of the network of, of NLS doing this project and loaning Braille e-readers out to people is such a, a major thing. We really want to get that feedback and make it happen so that people can have the Braille e-readers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thanks. Okay. And uh, I have a, a, a couple. I've got one for Scott. I thought maybe you could mention um, the content available on your YouTube page and our principal Sean and his incredible media skills and Michael I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about the older blind program I know at least uh, that we've lost one provider over here on the east side temporarily so you bet Reg this is Michael it looks like Scott has fallen from at least from my view here I don't know if he is here but uh yeah, definitely. Older Blind program is active. Um, they've been doing services in person. It is a challenge, an ongoing challenge of, of finding those providers. And we've had some recent discussions about uh, ways that we can expand uh, that uh, those vendors that provide those services. Um, we did have a change in the Tri-Cities, uh, but uh, um, we have a provider that uh, we're, work, we're, we're looking to get set up uh, to to support some of those services in the tri cities, um, does that resp- does that address your question, Reg? Absolutely. Hi, this is for Danielle. And Danielle, I heard a rumor that actually from one of your staff that there are some CCTV um, 
machines that are available for loan, but um, they didn't know. And I'm curious um, because I get a lot of calls from seniors who have, as you know, president of our local chapter, seniors who have recently lost their vision. And that's one thing I always recommend to them. Um, is that something that is mailed to them or do they have to figure out how to get get them? Hi, Zandra, that's a great question. Um, that's a program that we're just starting and it's a partnership with the Independent Living Program. Um, they will be mailed, but the, the person has to be a client of the Independent Living Program. I see, um, that's, that's good to know. It yeah. is another resource I give them, but usually when I talk to them, they, they haven't connected with anyone yet, so. Yeah, so I'll, I'll just, read the way it works is an IL provider will make the request and select the CCT model that they want, CCTV model they want, and then the IL program will send me the request, and then we do mail it out to them. Typically, it will get mailed to the IL provider to take to the client's home. Great, thank you so much. You're welcome. And uh, Michael, do we have a referral uh, that can be provided uh, to the chapter presidents or something for, for where if, if they have uh, people that are interested in availing themselves of those services for independent living? You bet. Our, our 1-800-552-7103. 1-800-552-7103. Or email info at dsb.wa.gov or through our website, uh, dsb.wada.gov. Uh, any of those ways can connect anyone to our services, any of our services, including independent living, uh, uh, VR, uh, BEP. So, yeah. And this Thanks is Danielle. This is Danielle. If I can add, we're just getting started with this program, and we've got a newsletter article that's going out at the end of November. Um, both in our newsletter that goes out in the mail and that will be on our website and in our email list that describes the program and has information about contacting specifically Alice Klein um, with the program. So um, we're just in the very early stages and that information will be going out at the end of November as well. And if you have specific questions, call me or I can get you in, in touch with Alice as well. But we're thank you, Michael, for helping support this. We're really excited about this program. And uh, Danielle, do you want to give the library 800 number? I would love to. Thank you, Reg. The library phone number is 800-542-0866. Thank you for that. Thanks to all three of you for being here. I'm, I'm sorry that uh, Vancouver went offline there for a bit, but I will uh, just mention that their YouTube channel has some amazing uh, described videos up there, concerts that have happened over the last couple of years and the last couple of graduation ceremonies. And uh, those of us in uh, the Newsline magazine, we love to um, congratulate those students for their accomplishments and uh, uh, support all the efforts that uh, they're doing around helping our, the students to get to college or a career. <clears throat> or you know whatever's gonna gonna work for for that particular student and uh, but thanks thanks to all of you for being here this was great great presentation uh deb how about a door prize one is exactly what you get our next door prize is donated by wcb diabetics thank you it's ten dollar starbucks gift card
Okay, let's see who gets this one. It is Beth Greenberg from, what was that? Vancouver. Vancouver, Washington. Our newest affiliate, Vancouver. Oh, yay. All right. Well, thank you, Sally and uh, Beth. I hope you like your Starbucks. Oh. Um, okay, and I'm going to turn this over to Deb now. Okay. Yeah. Wow. I get to be on. Um, I am the Secretary of Guide Dog Users of Washington State. We are a special interest affiliate chapter of the Washington Council of the Blind, and we're also part of Guide Dog Users International. Uh, GDUI had at its um, convention this summer a number of uh, great presentations. We've been featuring them at GDUWS as sort of an encore presentation because we thought they were so nice and some of our members missed them and some of our members have trouble getting um, podcasts. So um, this is um, a, a presentation uh, by author Christy Bain and it is about her book. The original presentation was 75 minutes long. Um, it's now only 35 minutes, um, but <laughs> that's because we had to trim it down. So um, it is edited. If you want to hear the entire presentation, you can go to um, acbmedia.org and search for it in the podcasts and hear the rest. But I think you'll still enjoy it. So uh, we'll play that now and then we'll see you all in the business meeting uh, and on ACB Media 9 at the top of the hour. We've got a really exciting presenter with us. Christy Bain is here. She has a wonderful book called Forward Together. So I'm going to turn this over to you, Christy. We've got some time, so go for it. Thank you for inviting me here to talk. I understand I'm here primarily to talk about my book, so that's what I'm going to do. And uh, I'm not here to sell my book and try to get everyone to buy it. It's more like I'm here to talk about why I wrote the book. And uh, it's also available uh, on BARD, as far as I know. And um, you can read it there. So anyway, we can talk about that later. But I just want to talk a little bit first about who I am. For those of you who don't know me, I am a trainer, but I am also I'm currently working in the Puppy Raising Services Department at Southeastern Guide Dogs, and I've been there for uh, three and a half years. I've also worked in the past at Leader Dogs and Seeing Eye, and I started my apprenticeship at Guiding Eyes. And I was a puppy raiser for Guide Dogs for the Blind. And I live with a field rep for Guide Dogs for the Blind, Will Henry. So um, pretty much my whole life is Guide Dogs, and it has been for a very long time. Um, the reason that I wrote the book was because there were not any books available that were current that really explained what happened um, before a dog became a guide dog. So uh, the puppy raising process and the formal training process. And I wrote the book for two groups of people primarily. One was puppy raisers because they always wanted to know um, how they're, you know, what happened to their dogs after they entered formal training. And for a long time, that was kind of like a, a secret. Like we didn't want them to know too much because, um, you know, we didn't want people to think that it, they could start training their dogs for guide dog tasks when they were puppies. Um, 
I guess that was part of the thinking behind it. Uh, but it, what it ended up being was to a puppy raiser, like you were sending your dog kind of into this black hole and you knew they were well taken care of, but you didn't know anything about what was going on with their life. And then the other group of people I wrote it for was guide dog handlers. Um, because a lot of guide dog handlers are very curious, of course, about how the dogs actually learn to do what they do. And uh, there wasn't a lot of detailed information about that. I know we explained some things as uh, class instructors, so you, you did understand and we're told some things about the training process, but I really wrote this book for the guide dog geeks among us, um, whether we're puppy raisers or handlers. And I say that uh, that's not a derogatory term to me. That's a very complimentary term. Um, guide dog geeks to me are people that just want to know everything they can about guide dogs and training. So. If I say that you're one of those, that's uh, definitely a compliment when it's coming from me. So I want to start with the process of writing the book. I knew for a long time that I was going to write a book about guide dog training. I mean, a very long time. I probably I had some chapters of it written probably as far back as like 2015. Uh, it was 2017 when I finally committed to writing it. And it was a New Year's resolution. And I just decided I'm going to write 2,000 words a day until I'm done. And at that time, I was working at Leader Dogs, and I, I did literally write 2,000 words a day, starting on January 1st and finishing on about April 17th. Um, it was a lot of words, and I thought it was probably too many words. And anybody who has the actual physical book might agree with me that it's too many words. Um, I just thought, well, I'll put it all on paper and the editor can get rid of what is not necessary. And I just figured the editor would get rid of a lot of stuff because I did not think that all those words <laughs> were necessary. It's just easier for me to generate a large amount of words and then throw away what doesn't need to be there. Um, so that was my plan. And once I wrote the book, I had this giant uh, manuscript. I think it was like 400,000 words or something. I, and then I didn't know what to do with it. Or rather, I did know what to do with it, but it was kind of difficult to do because I knew that I needed somebody. I knew I needed a professional editor. I did write to one publisher, it was uh, Dogwise. That's a company that produces a lot of training books and asked them if they were interested in publishing it. And they responded with a really nice letter, but basically said, no thanks, because they didn't think the audience was big enough. And I kind of agreed with them because I saw this as being a book that would be appealing to a kind of small group of people, like a niche. Um, but the people that were interested, I thought would be very interested, but that but I didn't think it would be a very big number. So I totally understood where they were coming from. but. Um, they did. Uh, they did give me the names of some freelance editors that they knew that wrote or worked on a lot of dog training books. So that was good because it allowed me to find somebody who is familiar with dog training um, and the way that dog training books are usually formatted. Because uh, a lot of things uh, I didn't really have a clue about, like, you know, do you capitalize obedience commands? Do you put them in quotes? Um, you know, what are the conventions followed in dog training books? And even though I thought I was a good enough writer, I am not good enough to um, produce a book that people are going to pay money for without having a professional kind of clean it up a little. So the reason that it didn't get published until 
2020, even though I finished it in 2017, is because getting a, uh, a freelance editor is very expensive, especially for a book of this size. Uh, and at the time, I just didn't have the extra money because I was doing a lot. I had a lot of expensive hobbies at the time. Like I was trying to do a marathon in all 50 states and I was doing triathlon and um, all those things took all my extra money. So that's actually the reason why I didn't put it out until 2020. It just seemed like a good time to take the final step and actually get the book done. So I contacted the editor a long time ago, but it wasn't until then that I actually um, committed to having her uh, edit the book. And by then I'd finished my 50 States marathon. I didn't have expensive hobbies happening anymore. So I had enough money to pay for the editor. And that is the reason why it took so long. Uh, so once she was done, she did like two passes through and she sent me back a round of first editing suggestions. And I did most of those. And thank goodness I paid for it. By the way, if you are ever going to publish a book, do get the editor because some of the things she made, she asked me to take out were I, I cringe at what would have happened if I left them in. And I probably would have left them in if she didn't tell me to take them out. So um, the editor is definitely, definitely worth it. And also, I just felt like if people are paying for this, they deserve something that's really clean and not uh, not just a rough draft. So she did one round of edit suggestions, and I, I made them send it back. She did one more round, and then I was kind of decided that I was okay with it the way it was, and she agreed. So then I had to figure out the cover and... Um, I had no clue how to do that. Although that is a thing that you can do if you do enough research and you're sort of tech savvy. I am not, I can barely manage zoom. So I knew I wasn't going to do that. Uh, so I found a private or freelance cover designer. I did take the pic or no. Uh, yes, I took the picture on the front cover. So that was me. Um, that's, that is a dog in training at Southeastern that was living with me at during COVID and the person holding the harness is actually Will. Um, it's his leg in the picture, not mine. Uh, that's because I'm a better photographer than he is. So um, I took the picture, but the, I had the cover professionally designed. It's a black lab and harness looking at the camera. Um, I'm proud of the picture. But I picked the cover design from the templates that um, the person suggested. So then I had to figure out how to get it on Amazon. And then there was a question of, did I want to make it an audible book? And I, I did, but the process of finding a reader and getting a contract and all that was kind of intimidating. So I put it on my list of things to do to figure out how to read my own book and put it on audible. And that's doable. I've just never done it. So that's the reason why it's, there's not an audio version available. Um, although it is, uh, on Bard and I, I know nothing about the process of how it got there, by the way, I'm totally fine with it being there. I'm happy that somehow it got there, but I, I really have no idea how it got there. Um, I'm happy that it's available though. So if anybody later wants to send me an email, if they know how that actually happened, then, uh, I would love to hear it, but it's not really necessary. I'm just glad it's available. So uh, that was kind of the process of writing the book. And then once I had it available, then I didn't know what to do. I didn't, uh, I, I was 
too, um, what's the word? I, I wasn't sure how to put it on Amazon without making it sound like I was trying to get people to spend money on it, which I did not want to do. But at the same time, I mean, I can't give it away because it costs money to print and it costs money to edit. So finally, Will just put it on Facebook and said, Christy wrote this book, go buy it. And I don't know what would have happened if he hadn't put it up. I don't know if anybody, I don't know if it ever would have gone out, but he finally did. And then a lot of people did. And then um, and it was very exciting because it had been a dream of mine for a long time to write a book and publish it. And when it finally did get published, even though it was self-published, that really was um, as satisfying as you think it would be. So if anybody's sitting there thinking, oh, I should probably write a book, you should. You should totally write the book. Um, it's doable by anybody it's, it, it, as long as you, um, you know, can hire the people that you need to to clean it up and make it presentable. Um, so it was it was extremely satisfying to hold it in my hand, even though I was still couldn't believe how big it is. I really thought she would take more words out, but she didn't. So I always tell people, if if you don't like the book, you can use it as a doorstop. If it doesn't work out as a book for you, then it has other functions or you know, hit somebody on the head with it. Or uh, There's a lot of things you can do with it uh, besides read it. Uh, but anyway, so I feel like I'm going to go on to the subject matter of the book. Um, even though I only wrote it four years ago, there's still a lot of stuff when I look in there now, I think, well, that's not, that's not how I do that now, or that's not how I feel about this subject or that subject. So sometimes I feel like it needs to be updated. And other times I feel like, eh, no, I'm probably going to wait a little bit longer before I update it. Cause also I'm not currently training guide dogs at all. It's been, uh, about three years since I trained a guide dog. So, um, for a lot of people, the further they get from the time when they actually train guide dogs, the better guide dog trainer they become in their own head. That's definitely true for me. I know that, uh, in my head, my dogs used to be awesome and I was a great trainer. And uh, I know that that's probably not true, but, uh, but in my head it is. So I, at some point, I hope to go back and train actual guide dogs again. Um, even though I, I really do love puppy raising and I love puppy raisers. Um, I would love to do both of them, but it's kind of difficult to do because um, they're both full-time jobs. But anyway, I, I do feel like I was kind of in a, a good position to write a book like this. And the reason is because I started guide dog training when we didn't use any food at all. In fact, the, the thought of using food was an absolute no um, because of all the reasons that people had um, you would make the dog scavenge. If the dog wasn't hungry, it wouldn't work. Um, dogs should work because they love you, not because of food. So e even with a dog that was afraid of things, we didn't really use food when I started. Um, I don't remember what we did do if a dog was afraid of things. I think we just tried to get them used to it by you know, using praise and encouragement and all that, but we would never use food. Uh, not even to like get them in a crate if they didn't want to go or anything like that. So um, that, and also we didn't use head collars like gentle leaders. Those were never used or halties never, ever. Um, because when I started, all the dogs had slip collars or choke chains, the, the politically incorrect term, but that was what they all had. Even the really soft and sweet dogs, that was the collar they, they used on them. So I had probably, I mean, my first seven or eight years of guide dog training were 
they were all traditional training and I learned, I learned traditional training very well. And when I say traditional training, I mean training that was done with compulsion. Um, so if the dogs didn't want to pull. We made it pull. We, we pulled on the collar until they realized that they had to go forward because it was very uncomfortable not to go forward when asked. Uh, they had to stop at a curb because if they didn't, then they got a snap on the leash. And so, um, they did. They stopped the curbs because they didn't want the leash correction. If they wanted to chase an animal or another dog, they were going to get a leash correction too. So we hoped that they would make the better decision and not just not go after the animal. Um, the problem with that is that over time, I'm sure that you guys will agree with me, um, the public has gotten more and more uh feeling like they have the right to intervene in guide dog handling and dog handling in general it's not just guide dogs it's it's any dog handling so the public is very quick to question what a handler is doing with a dog and they are also very quick to call the school if they don't feel like a dog is being treated properly and the volume of complaints that the schools get or used to get about the way the dogs were being handled was just going up all the time. And it wasn't because people were abusing their dogs. It was because they were using techniques that the public is starting to see as, um, as cruel. Because as all this was happening, the, the rise of clicker training in the pet dog world was happening and positive reinforcement training with food. And so pet dog owners, when they take classes in dog training, like at PetSmart or, uh, or from private dog trainers, a lot of them were being told that you don't ever have to use corrections. You only have to use food. And so that, that belief kind of seeped out into the public. And so when they saw guide dog handlers using corrections, they thought that that was wrong. And they, a lot of them felt like they were, they have the right to interrupt the handler and tell them so, uh, or they have the right to call the school and complain that the dog is being abused. So um, that was one big reason for the shift in training. And the other big reason, of course, is that, um, about the same time period, Guide Dogs for the Blind had started using positive reinforcement in their training program, and they had shared their knowledge with the other schools. So we, we saw that it did work, um, but I was in the group of trainers that learned one way and got really good at it, and then the training world kind of changed, and I had to learn a whole other way and get good at that as well. And so that was a lot of what I wrote about in the book. Um, was the change from one method of training to the other and kind of the pros and cons of each one. And um, it, it, I personally, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good at positive reinforcement training now. I wouldn't say I'm, I'm amazing at it, but I'm pretty good at it for what we need, need to do with guide dog training and puppy raising. Um, I have some opinions about it, which I was honest about in the book and, they haven't really changed all that much, but uh, I, I still feel like it kind of takes, it takes longer in some cases to correct undesirable behaviors when using only positive reinforcement in some cases, not in all cases, because a lot of dogs and a lot of handlers are really good with positive reinforcement. And um, I like to think that our dogs get better all the time and our training programs get better all the time. So I'm definitely not saying it doesn't work. I'm just saying in some cases it can be slower um, to, to work than a standard leash correction used to be. But the benefit of it is that you don't get people interfering with your work and calling and complaining to the school. So 
Um, I, I understand both training methods very well, but I've pretty much in puppy raising at Southeastern, we pretty much only use positive reinforcement. I've, I've never taught a puppy raiser how to give a leash correction um, because we just don't do those with the puppies in training. And really we don't need to with the puppies in training. They, uh, you know, when they're young and little and learning, they're very receptive to uh, whatever method we're using to handle them. So I've got one right now, by the way. I have a little four-month-old puppy that I'm starting, uh, and he's just sitting, a yellow lab puppy. He's sitting here looking up at me with the sweetest face as I'm petting his head. He's like, yes, I like positive reinforcement because it's more food for me. Um, anyway, so that was one thing I wanted to write about in the book was the change from one method to the other and uh, the challenges and opportunities that came along with it. And then the other reason I wrote it, like, like I said, was just because I wanted to educate. I wanted to give people an insight into the training that happened. I had a blog for a long time, and I, I don't really know why I stopped writing it. I, I guess because I'm busy or because in my current position, I'm kind of afraid that if I write anything... Um, I, I don't want it to make to look like what I'm saying about puppy raising is what people should listen to instead of what their organization says about puppy raising. Um, and I'm not actively training guide dogs right now, so I don't really have anything to say about guide dog training um, at the moment. And that's kind of why I stopped my blog. But I would like to start it up again at some point. Um, I'm just not sure when. But the, the level of interest that people had in my blog, which talked about behind the scenes training of both puppies and guide dogs, because I'm also a long, long time puppy raiser. That's how I started in 1987. Um, I was 11 years old. I, my first puppy was from Guide Dogs for the Blind. So uh, actually my first seven puppies were from Guide Dogs for the Blind. So that was that blog was so well received that that was why I thought that there would be interest in a book on the subject. And like I said, because there really isn't a book that was written anytime recently by a trainer. Um, so there's a lot of people that were better qualified than me to write this book, but none of them did. That's what I, that's always what I say. There's definitely a lot of people that are better dog trainers than me. I think of myself as pretty much an average dog trainer for my years of experience. Um, I like to think that I'm a pretty thoughtful dog trainer, so I, I do things deliberately, and I always have a reason for what I'm doing, and I'm always looking at is it working or not, but I don't really think, I definitely don't have any natural dog training ability that's better than other people's. Um, in fact, kind of the opposite. I really felt bad for the people training me when I was an apprentice, um, especially Pete Jackson at the Seeing Eye, because uh, I'm sure a lot of you know him. I, you know, he would, he would explain something to me and I would sit there and analyze it. And while I was analyzing it, my dog had done probably, you know, say it went after a squirrel and he told me, correct it. So then I would say, okay, but last time my dog did this, you told me that I should do something different or, or the last dog that I had, you said, don't correct him, do something else. And, and in the meantime, the dog was, you know, still going for the squirrel or maybe it stopped to sniff something while I was trying to figure out why he was telling me that. Um, so poor PJ, but, uh, he gave me a really good dog training education and I actually have a really thorough, um, journal of the things that he told me. And I'm trying to figure out 
uh, what would be the best way to, so I would love to publish that someday. It's just, there's a lot of things in it that I think a lot of people would rather that I did not put out in the world for everybody to read. So um, the stuff that makes a good book is probably something that a lot of people would prefer that I not publish. So I'm not sure what to do about that. I think maybe I'll just write it and, you know, have it edited and save it until I'm either retired or, um, you know, leave the field someday. Not that I think I'm ever going to do that, but I guess someday it's possible that I would retire um, and then publish it then. Because I would love to publish a guide dog memoir, but it has a lot of other people whose feelings need to be considered. Um, so I guess if I would, if sometimes people ask me, what will my next book be? Um, it will be that for sure, but I just don't know when it's going to happen. Um, or I would also love to write a book on just general puppy training. Um, hopefully that will happen someday. When you have, when I make a good project, no matter what it is, I leave a lot on the floor, like on the cutting room floor is what I call it. Uh, so when I make a presentation or even like a, a PowerPoint, I usually make way more stuff than I need. I've always thought as a trainer I, or as an instructor, I want to be asked questions. I mean, I don't see that there's any harm in people asking me. If I tell you to do something, I've always said, I better have a reason why. And if, if somebody asks me, um, why are you telling me to do this? My answer better not be because that's just how we do it. And if it is, I say, you can, you can feel free to ignore me. If that's the reason you don't have to take my advice. Cause that's a dumb reason. Like <laughs> there, there should be a reason why I'm telling you to do something. And, um, sometimes people don't agree with it and then we can have a discussion. And it's true that not everything is true for every dog. So, um, even in the old days, if somebody had said like, I really don't think I should leash correct my dog here. And this is the reason there are times when they might be right. I'm not technically here as a representative of my school. Um, they have somebody else giving the school update, not me. So I'm here just as an author. So my my email address is my name. It's Christy Bain, C-H-R-I-S-T-I-E, B as in boy, A-N-E, and that's all just one word, at gmail.com. What is your take about using shelter dogs? Have you had any experience with using shelter dogs? I know that schools tried it in the past, and the reason that it never became a thing is that their success rate was really low uh, because all the schools breed for a temperament that's really difficult to get because what we need is um, we need a dog that's really confident, but we also need a dog that's really interested in what the handler wants. So uh, we need a dog that has the energy to do the job, but also you know, has an off switch. So when you don't need it, it will just lay down under the table and not be up in everybody's face trying to get attention. So um, what we need is really hard to get. It's it's hard to find, but it's more it's slightly more easy to find if we breed the parents that have that those temperament characteristics. Um, still, we don't get it because breeding is kind. I sometimes joke and say that I should write a book called Crapshoot about how to make a good guide dog because you can breed um, the very best parents and they they can have a litter that is completely unsuccessful as guide dogs and. Um, the opposite. You can breed parents that have some temperament concerns and the whole litter can graduate. So I certainly don't have any problem with the idea of getting a dog from a shelter and training it to be a guide dog because you can find a good dog literally anywhere. And you can find it from a backyard breeder. You can find it from a show dog breeder. You can find it from a hunting dog kennel. Uh, just the chances are better if they are 
bred for the qualities that we need for a guide dog, if that makes sense. Um, so I'm not opposed. I just do think that they probably would be less significant or less successful in numbers, and that would bring the cost of each team up a lot higher. And um, that's the reason why the schools don't do it, as far as I know. And then there's the health, too, because we do breed for uh, for health. And I know that like at Southeastern, for example, we have almost completely gotten rid of uh, hip dysplasia. I've only seen... I think like four or five cases since I've been here and all of them have been mild. So uh, that's really impressive because as you know, in the breeds that we use, they're prone to hip dysplasia. So they pretty much bred those things out. Um, I wish that we could all be, <laughs> I wish that we could all be successful at breeding out um, skin and ear issues because that's kind of a different ball of wax, but uh, we're trying, we're doing everything we can. So that's the answer. And I, uh, I feel like I talked for a long time and I hope that's a good enough answer. What would you say um, is the biggest change you've seen since the old days? I, I really do think it's the it's the addition of food and the reduction of police corrections. I mean, I agree with you that there's not the, the number of shepherds. I love shepherds. I'm really Me sad too. that they're not used as much. I understand why they're not. Because, and honestly, this is my personal opinion. Um, it, one reason is that they are not as responsive to food training because uh, not that they aren't responsive, because I know somebody listening in this audience has a shepherd that loves food and is super food motivated. But, um, but in the shepherd population in general, I feel like maybe they were better suited to the old method of training because um, I've had shepherds my entire life, and I feel like they their decline as guide dogs kind of coincided with the upswing in positive reinforcement. And I feel like part of the reason, maybe, again, if somebody has a shepherd that works great for food, like, please understand I'm not saying that that can't happen. I, I totally think it can happen, um, does happen. And there are lots of shepherds out there working now that we're trained with positive reinforcement, and they're doing great. But I, I feel like a lot of shepherds kind of preferred it, the old training or did better with it because there's always different individual learners for whom different methods are more useful. Like my own shepherd, who is a pet, um, I did use food reinforcement with her, but I also used corrections because she's my pet and I can. And I feel like that was more easily understandable for her. Kind of like for me, I don't care if somebody is training me something and they say, no, you're doing it wrong. Do this. I don't care. That's perfectly okay to me. I say, oh, okay, I'm doing it wrong. Like I need to do it that way. And other people, if somebody says to them, you're doing it wrong, you need to do it the other way, they'll cry because they feel like, and because they're more sensitive than I am or they feel like they're being, uh, you know, their teacher is being demeaning to them. So it makes sense to me that different dogs respond better to different methods. Um, but the, I do think the biggest factor in that is just the, is the public reaction because a lot of people just the amount the volume of complaints that all the schools get is pretty um pretty high i'm actually temporarily working at alumni support in addition to puppy raising at southeastern and um, and i i do get a number of calls about people quote unquote mishandling their dogs and in almost every case when i investigate it it's nothing but like a standard leash correction given for a work error which is how people have been taught to handle their dogs for decades so um, the public sees it, and they are so upset. They, um, I had one recently where this driver of a car actually followed the person home and harassed them from her vehicle the whole time. 
um, be, and then called the school. What do you know about canine training? I've read some uh, detective stories. They were fictional, but I could tell the authors did a lot of research. From a casual observer's point of view, it seemed to me that in general, canines seem to be more instinctively um, attuned to do their work. It just seems like they, they just fit into it from the beginning with so much more alacrity than, than uh, guide dogs. And, and of course, I'm generalizing here, but what do you know about canines? We work with a program that, tra- that takes some of our transferred dogs and, and uses them for that type of stuff. And I think that that program is a little bit more simple in terms of matching the dog's innate qualities with the work that's needed to be done. So uh, what they're looking for is high drive and persistence. And when they identify a dog with those qualities, then it's pretty straightforward. Like, okay, the dog has this quality. We're going to show you what we want you to find. And when you find it, you're going to get this. Now go. So it's a much, um, it's easier to match up the drive with the task than it is for guide dogs because guide dogs is, um, being a guide dog is not black and white. It's very gray, and it's, there's a lot of abstraction in it. Um, the dog has to take cues from the environment as opposed to just from the handler. Um, the dog sometimes has cues from the handler that conflict with what it um, has been trained to do because of something in the environment the handler doesn't know about. I, that's a long way of saying intelligent disobedience. So. Uh, I think guide dog work is just a little, it's more stressful because the answer is not always black and white. And a lot of dogs find that kind of decision-making to be really difficult. That's where I, that's my air traffic controller analogy. And no matter how much you paid me, I would not be a good air traffic controller because I just couldn't take the stress. Like you could pay me a million dollars and I couldn't do it because it's just too stressful. And I think that's what it is with guide dogs too, because the combination of qualities you need to be a good guide, you need confidence, but not so much confidence that you're just going to try to get whatever you want because you also need biddability, the desire to do what your handler wants you to do, but you can't be so so biddable or so willing that you can't exercise disobedience when you need to. You have to have the energy to pull in harness, but you have to be willing to turn it off to lay under the desk. So it's the combination of traits needed for a guide dog is really tricky to find in one dog, whereas with a canine, they're basically just looking for drive and um, persistence. And so what if the dog has that, it's probably going to be a good canine. Can you speak to the um, variety of experience, the differences that you found between schools, um, generally speaking, and the differences and and how how you've experienced those over the years? I think sort of a general question about that. Yeah, Thanks. that's okay. I, I have a general answer that I can give you. Um, the first thing I'll say is I love all of them, and I'm on good terms with all of the schools I've been at, and really um, the reason that I'm in, I'm at Southeastern is literally, I mean, I, I do love Southeastern, but also because I just can't do winter. Like, I can't, and all the other places I worked have winter, and even though I love them all, I just, no more snow for me, that's it. So um, the second thing I wanna say is that all the met, all the ways work because when I go from one school to another, um, sometimes I'll see, well, often I'll see di- a lot of different ways that schools reach the same goal. Like the training plans that they follow are different or the philosophies are different. I mean, 
And, and then they just have things that are part of their culture, like um, pretty much every trainer at Southeastern has a drool rag on their treat bag, and like other schools don't. And I don't know the reason. It's just, you know, nobody is without one here, and nobody has one at other places. Or like at Seeing Eye, everybody had a Gore-Tex rain hat, and they just don't do that somewhere else, and I don't know the reason. Um, but one thing I've learned is that all the schools work in terms of putting mostly graduating dogs and handlers that are successful, no matter what their methods are. Um, and most of them are pretty open-minded as far as discussing, uh, you know, the training that happens at other organizations and, um, and you have a pretty good chance, no matter where you go, of getting a good dog from any school. So what I always tell people is, if training method is important to you, especially with regard to using food or not, that's something you need to find out before you go to the school. Because if you hate food and you go to a school that uses food, you're probably not gonna have a great experience um, not only because you will be expected to use food in class because that's how the dog was trained and the dog is not gonna work as well if you don't, but also um, because when you go home, if you don't wanna use food and the dog, if the dog's expecting it, then the dog's work probably isn't going to be as good. And there are still schools that don't use a lot of, well, I can't really speak to seeing eye. As far as I know, they, um, they are still teaching clicker training, right, for people that want it, but it's not, I don't believe it's mandatory um, in their program. But somebody can certainly correct me if I'm wrong because I haven't been there in a long time. So I, I think it's great, actually, that there's a variety of schools available because that means that people can find the one that suits them best and whose methods suit them best. I've never known anybody that worked with a breeder dog i i know they have to be good dogs oh yeah i've known people breed. who worked with breed like retired breeder dogs who have had a couple yeah oh i have um, i've known quite a few and they have they've all been successful i would say go for it all right and we have to go for it so that's going to conclude our um excerpt from the uh, guide dog users incorporated uh, summer convention program 